Welcome back, everyone. We are live for another episode of Growing With My Fellow Growers. I am your host, Jack Greenstock. You can find me on Cannabuzz and Instagram. You can also find me at Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter. I'm joined, as always, by an amazing panel, and I want to pass it over first to Spartan Grown. What's up, everybody? I'm Spartan Grown. Uh, I'm a cultivator here in Michigan. Uh, at my home grow, I focus on organic, and at uh, work at Minton Co., I, we grow synthetically there. You can find me at Spartan Grown at, on Instagram, all one word, or you can shoot me an email, spartangrown at gmail.com. Welcome back, Spartan. Always great to have you. And next up, Matthew Gates. Hey, everyone. This is Matthew Gates. I'm an integrated pest management specialist, and uh, I do a lot of cool things. But if you, uh, if you watch the Future Cannabis Project, you can find on their second channel a four-hour podcast I did with um, Soup the Gardener and uh, G-Bay Genetics. And um, we talked about various aspects of IPM, and um, I thought it was a really illuminating sort of discussion. So you can find some of my more recent talk there. Uh, you can also find me on my Xenthanol YouTube channel, where a bunch of my free IPM information can be found. Welcome back, and he's uh, also a staff writer at Skunk Magazine, and soon to be having some more work with uh, Dr. MJ Coco, which, speaking of which, welcome back, Dr. MJ. Hey, guys. Yeah, Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. Um, I'm actually heading off for a road trip tomorrow with my wife. We're going about five hours, so I just figured out what four hours are going to be listening to. Um, so I hope my wife is interested in some IPM uh, with, with Matthew Gates. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm happy to be back with you guys. I uh, was gone visiting my mother last week. Um, but yeah, excited to be here for the show. Well, we are happy to have you back as always. I was going to pass it over next to Brandon, but he's taking a bong rip. So we'll go over to the American one. Hello, Jack panel and everyone in chat. It's uh, great to be here tonight. Uh, I'm the American one on YouTube and the American one underscore with 18s with underscore Eakins on IG. Um, and yeah, it's always good to be here. Hope everyone had a great week. And yes, good to be back. Off to a great start. We've got a, I'm having a good week, week at least. Uh, I want to remind everybody who's with us, click on over to the live chat so you can see all the messages and don't get any of them filtered out based on YouTube's algorithm and choices. Next up, Brandon Rust. What's going on, everybody? Uh, Brandon Rust. If you guys aren't familiar with me, uh, you can find me on Instagram at rust.brandon. Here, I'll change my little icon in the section there. Right there, bam. IG, you can find a link to Bokashi Earthworks, my fertilizer company, and Black Label Organics, which is my farm in Oklahoma. Welcome back. Always a pleasure to have you. I know you're a busy man, as are many of us on the panel, but I want to pass it next to Noah the Groa. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Yeah, sorry I've been off for a couple of weeks, but excited to be here. I'm uh, Noah the Grow with two E's, and uh, yeah, I'm ready to get into it. How's everyone doing? Doing well. Happy to have you back. I want to pass it next to, and last but certainly not least, Kyle Breeder. Welcome back, Kyle. Hey, everybody. Um, yeah, my name is Kyle Breeder. I am a canvas breeder that specifically specializes in feminized seeds. Uh, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I do have a website if you're looking for feminized seeds and uh, autoflower seeds in, within a week or so. 
It's uh, the website is the letter P followed by breeding.com. And for anybody that is interested, and I haven't done it on all social media platforms because it'd just be too much to manage. But uh, if anybody is on Instagram that's listening, I am doing a free clone giveaway for um, a clone of one of my mothers of my personal breeding stock. So if you're interested in that, uh, please look at my recent feed posts and uh, follow those uh, basically what's stated on the feed. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to be here. And thanks for hosting Jack. Follow those instructions and you may be the winner of that clone. I've uh, won a few things on Instagram myself, including my curador and uh, some other cool shit. So definitely check out Kyle's giveaway. That's really cool. And also I want to say thank you to Kyle because he's hooking up a family member of mine with some seeds, which was uh, very generous of him. Get him started out with some fems, uh, photo period, something that I know is resistant to a little bit of stress in case they uh, mess up a little bit here and there, but we'll still end up with some uh, fire. Now, Kyle, you mentioned that your fem uh autoflower seeds are going to be ready in about a week and i'm just curious because i know my process i'm making like f2s and f3s with a strain and roughly how long it takes me to get the seeds to be ready uh, for germination and ready to send out to my testers and things like that but uh, i'm just curious what's your process from when you harvest a seeded plant to the uh you know getting it into a vial and ready for somebody to grow yeah, uh, so just, I guess, to be more more specific, because I don't want people to think that I'm just uh, smashing two plants together and, like, releasing them. But um, so I have partnered with, or collaboration, however you want to see it, with uh, Full Duplex, a.k.a. Mandalorian Genetics. So those are going to be available on the website. Uh, in the meantime, we are doing a project together. Um, you know, I'm going to have some stuff. I'm going to work, he said I could uh, work with his stuff. And so there's some collaboration in that regards on the background coming, but I should have his gear on my website soon. So shout out to him. Um but in regards to your specific question, uh, so what I know is important is drying the flower out to basically uh, almost powder. You know, at least this is, again, this is just my process and I've had uh, very good feedback from everything. So I dry it out to extreme flower, I'm sorry, powder. Um, sometimes the environments don't allow for that. So if you do have more of a damp room that has a higher humidity and you're having trouble having the, the flower get to that point, running a fan, uh, directly on it will speed that process up. If you do have a humid room, it'll still help and uh, it'll get to that point. And basically when I get to that flower, when it's when I have it in my hand and crush it, that it turns into powder because it's A, uh, it dries the seed, the seed itself, it dries that out, and it, but it also makes it extremely easier to deal with when you're trying to go through, you know, pounds of flour with seeds in there. So now you have that stock. And then what I highly suggest from that point is either A, if you want to sit on a couch and try and, uh, singly finger out seeds, which is an extremely uh, long and drawn out task. Uh, I would just have maybe reach out to some carpenter that you might know or somewhere and just throw them a couple hundred bucks to build you a seed, uh, seed store. That's what I did. And uh, it's basically, I can do three pounds of trim and seed and have basically a finished product of just seed within like th uh, two minutes uh, max. But uh, so once basically, so once you get your seeds at that point, you've dried it out completely, you got your seeds now. Um, you know, I've tried not freezing it and seeing how that process went and the germination rate and the way they grew definitely weren't as good as it, if you were to put them in the freezer, um, basically replicating mother nature, you know, the frost, the freezing, and then maybe, you know, and then coming back through spring, I've had a, a way better improvement in regards of freezing it. So what I did is once I dried it out, got the seed, um, I put it in the freezer for probably, I think for around three or four days. And then what you want to do is when you pull it out, don't just open the lid and check on it. You want it to actually uh, defrost and thaw back to its own, to the room temperature that it's in. And then you can open it up and play with it. And then you can start packing it and, and stuff like that in the vials. And that's li literally and specifically the process that I use. Nice. I um, 
tried a few side-by-sides. I did room temperature versus uh, Curador, which was 60 degrees, versus my freezer versus my refrigerator with uh, like 50 seeds each and germinated like 10 of the ones in each condition. And the freezer, fridge, and Curador all had like 100% germination. The room temp was a little bit lower. Um, so I just went with the easiest one that had the highest result for me, which was uh, 60 degrees, 60% RH, just like I keep my flower. But I definitely think that the winterizing process of the seed um, potentially could increase the germination rate. I've heard some people actually take stuff that they're having a hard time germinating, throw it in the freezer. When they take it out, let it thaw, then germinate it, have higher success rates with their, um, you know, popping those seeds. So definitely. I'm also interested to see, um, I know Brandon also has been making seeds that he's put out into the market a little bit recently. Um, is your process similar to Kyle's and uh, what's your step or your, how do you go from harvesting the seeded plant to having your seeds ready to be shipped to someone who wants to grow them? Yeah, it's same thing. It's a lot of work, you know, pulling seeds out of a plant. I have a little seed counter now, which is nice, but uh, I literally would like take a, like a strainer, um, like a spaghetti strainer. And as long as you can get your material, like Kyle said, really powdery, you can sift all the material right through that. And then you can be left with just your seeds. Um, if you've done a pretty good job and you got everything to finish and mature, you're usually only left with really nice mature seeds. But in the case that you didn't, um, you can, like Kyle said, you can use a seed separator or one of the things that I even have done is I've taken a, a long styrofoam box. And then what I did is took a blow dryer and I let them kind of fall down and I blew dry the heavier seeds that were good would fall and all the bad ones would kind of keep blowing upwards. So I could kind of separate them that way. Um, I've done all kinds of different things, sifting techniques, all that stuff. I really need a, uh, a seed separator though. Yeah, they're pretty badass from all the videos I've seen for the uh, small home. That's where I'd be looking. What's that? Uh, Cascadian Grown on his website. He's selling them. It's a different version. It sits, it's lower. It's not a big, tall thing, but uh, I like it. Yeah, I mean, whatever works, really. Um, I found out a pretty uh, poor man's method the other day because I made the Velvet Punch F3s. And as I've been breaking up the buds, um, I do kind of like Kyle was talking about dry it even further than I would like my bud that I'm going to smoke. So with the herbs now, I do like a double cycle. So I intentionally get it super dry. So that way I can uh, break it up really easily and all the seeds break out and I put it into a rolling tray. Um, Like I'm going to go, you know, bust it down and smoke it up. But when I'm separating the seeds, I kind of use a card and uh, brush most of them off to the side and you get left with about 50% seeds and 50% plant material. I'll take that and I'll scoop it out with like a piece of a, you know, cardboard, whatever, uh, credit card. And I just, for whatever reason, I was trying to like blow, like Brandon was talking about with, uh, I saw a bunch of people using different methods to use wind to get it to separate the plant material. But I had some paper towel sitting next to me. So I took two long sheets of paper towel and folded it like hot dog style. And I dropped the seeds on there and I rolled it from one to the next. And the plant material got stuck to the paper towel because it was sticky where the seeds were a little more dry and they would just kind of roll through. So uh, what took me a half an hour to pull a hundred seeds, like Kyle was saying, my finger with like I had tweezers and I was just picking it out of the oh, broken up plant material uh, to like less than 30 seconds sorting over a hundred seeds. It was definitely uh, cool to 
advanced technique with such a simple process, but the American one, I know you're also a seed maker yourself. So I'm curious if you have any uh, secret, secret techniques or uh, what's your method to go from the harvested plant to sending the seed out to people? Uh, yeah, I never put them in the freezer. I put them in the refrigerator for like two weeks. So basically, uh, like similar to what uh, Kyle was saying, and I try and let it go as long as I can to let them ripen as much as possible. Then I just hang it up, let it dry as much as possible. And then after they're separated from the plant material, I'll, uh, I'll put them all in the refrigerator for two weeks. And I'll, and I'll take them out and yeah, I won't mess with them, you know, I'll let them get to regular temperature. And then I'll, uh, I'll put them, I don't know if I'm going to continue doing this, but I was putting and putting them in a mason jar with, um, I would take rice, put it in the oven and heat it up to about 200 degrees let it dry out thoroughly so that the rice is totally dry and nothing's on it. I probably put it up to like 300, whatever. Sterilizing it. Yeah. So, and drying it out totally. You want it totally dry. But I don't know if that's the best uh, the route anymore, but I'll probably continue because it seems to work. And all the seeds that I've been sending out that are three years old, I guess four, I might have some that are left over. I think I have a little jar, but I'm not putting those, like sending those out anymore, but. Um, yeah, definitely three-year-old seeds are definitely all damn near 100% germination still. So I had 100% germination with your Amy Aces. I don't know when you made that batch, but 100%. Yeah. Okay. I was pretty stoked. I've got two females right now that I'm trying to pick between. I've them growing next to the Donnie Burger, and it was originally the plan was to do one Amy Aces and one Donnie Burger, but both right. Amy Aces are so much like healthier and happier and like great-looking plants, and the Donnie Burger is kind of like a thinner more fickle plant and veg um, right but i'm just like forcing myself to take at least one donnie burger and uh pull the one Dude, of the off i can on word that uh she doesn't disappoint because and you know gmo from uh the grow for the 420 grow form oh shit yeah them guys uh gmo has a whole room full of them so and it's looking good. I just saw it on his IG. So I'm not going with it. I hope you all are not disappointed. I love that plant. The mother is really unique. So I'm growing some GMO right now. And uh, I'm going to take a bunch of cuts and cross it with all of the select males that I do out of this uh, pheno hunt. I'm going to find three males from the varieties that, I, uh, that I'm looking at. And uh, I'm going to flower all of my males out to find the best one. And then... Uh, I'm gonna. The first crosses are gonna be with the uh, Afghani bull rider and the GMO. So Funny those enough. those two clones are gonna be hit by like, uh, you know, I'll do an Afghani GM, uh, do an Afghani bull rider, times whatever males that I have. You know, I'll take. You know, I'll just have a. I have a little chamber inside of a little chamber inside of a room in the back of my shipping container, so I can do like hunts for males and stuff. It's gonna be pretty cool. I'm stoked on that for you. Uh, the funny thing was uh, the GMO that uh, Tao was talking about is actually the guy. He We call him GMO. He's from the over, I won't say which country, but he's in one of those European countries with an accent where they're not allowed to grow just yet. And uh, they, their YouTube is Grow Room 420 Community Videos. So shout out to GMO. They might even be in the chat with us right now. Uh, Kyle, it looked like you unmuted. I don't know if you wanted to jump in there. Oh, no, I was just thinking... Um... Uh, I'm just oh, ironically, I don't know if you guys seen it, but shout out to uh, Skunk Tech and Mean Gene. I have a GMO by a, a root beer back cross um, 
clone that got sent to me. So I'm like extremely happy to see where that goes. Um, and to be having like some little work from the two of those guys. Cause they're both really good. Um, I respect them both a lot. The one thing I wanted to say is um, I've heard a lot of root beer, but it's all like sort of been like hype and, and hype, yeah, honestly right. a lot of memes. And I know it's a uh, mean gene is known for his memes, but he's also known for really dank uh, cannabis as well. So I'm curious if anybody knows the story behind the root beer. Does it actually smell and taste like root beer? Like what's the deal with the root beer? Well, what's funny is if you look at my post, some guy was like, yeah, you know, it's all hype shit. And then Mean Gene actually came on to my, my commentary from that post and like basically like, because some guy was like, oh, you know, you know, basically the guy was like, aficionado sells the root beer season are too high price. How would this kid even have the real cut? Because he was talking about the picture that I posted. And all of a sudden uh, Skunk Tech came in. He's like, dude, it is the real deal. Mean Gene gave me the root beer cut and I crossed it into the GMO that I have. And then Gene, Mean Gene himself came on and he's like, first of all, dude, he's like, Fishinato doesn't even sell root beer seeds. Nobody has root beer seeds. I've never released root beer seeds. There is no root beer seeds. And that cut is my cut. And that is real root beer. So that was like all went down on my, uh, my post. So, uh, so it's cool yeah. that you definitely have the real lineage, but does anybody like know, is it a good high? Does it smell like root beer? Taste like root beer? Like what's the significance? Sure. I only know, I think maybe one or two people that are growing it and I have never even asked them. You know what? I think next week we should, we should try and ask me and Gene to have a cameo appearance oh, and man, uh, explain right? it personally, right? Reach he out to him. Shit. Brandon and Kyle both have connections. Uh, knock, right. knock. What's let's up? Let's do that. Yeah. Do a, let's do a, let's do a lime root beer. <laughs> Dude, I have, I have some insane stuff. So I, you know, I haven't, released any of the uh, death breath times line one and i'm not going to uh the shit is fucking insane dude the terpene profile on it is crazy so i'm gonna hunt through everything that i have but you know he gave me uh i have like 55 black lime reserves that uh from seed that i got from them that's one of the things i'm gonna hit onto the gmo um dude i'm I have a, a huge list of projects going forward. We have a question real quick if, uh, before we jump into that, if we could just hit this, because uh, I think it's a short answer for most of us, but uh, Kyle answered it in the chat. Spartan Grown was kind enough to send it to us. Good Life asks, how long would you put them, being the seeds, in the freezer for? Um, my answer would be, Kyle said four days only is necessary. Um, so as short as four days to indefinitely, I've heard people keeping right. them 10, 20, 30 years in the freezer. I saw um, Kagyu of Coastal Seeds popped a 35 or 40 year old seed that he had been keeping in his freezer. So it's slows down the aging process, just like everything else. There's going to be less microbes on it. It's not going to age as quickly. So that's how they it probably, it's, it's fall probably, hard. That's yeah. how they preserve their seeds. It's extremely cold. So it's yeah, if you can afford a cryo freezer, you could definitely go forever. They have to be stored properly too. It's not like it's not like they're just taking a seed and you throw it in a bag and then throw it in the yeah, freezer. Yeah, like, like a Ziploc bag. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So one uh, tip on the freezer is like using multiple layers of jars. So like if you had it in a bag, then you could put like rice in a mason jar and throw it in. So if you don't want the rice to directly hit, that'll yeah. be a simple way to prevent some of the moisture. But there's a whole bunch of ways. The cheapest and easiest way I found. Um, for keeping moisture out of the seed 
and not having to worry about disinfecting anything is a clean paper towel. It absorbs moisture and it's not gonna mess with your seeds at all. And you can just rip off tiny little pieces of it. I've used that to take stuff in and out of fridges and freezers and never had any issues with them like starting to germ because a little bit of moisture got in there. I heard a real brilliant one. This guy can was, I jump in with... one thing about freezing the seeds? Yeah. First of all, I think it's it would probably be fine to just refrigerate them. I, I definitely see the advantage there of, of sending the seed into dormancy. Um, freezing them is not going to be a problem if the seed is dry enough. Um, the problem would be if you tried to freeze seeds that were still too wet and that could cause damage inside the seed. Right. That's a great point um, because, yeah, if it's not dry enough, it'll, as people may or may not know, water expands when it gets frozen. That like uh, having yeah. the Cleveland Brown Stadium, they made their windows a little bit too tight with their frame. And like when the water got in there, and it froze, it expanded, and it made all the windows shatter for like a giant section of this uh, stadium. Yeah, so exactly, definitely not a good thing if your water inside the seed freezes and then busts the shell open. And that's and actually the other side of the concern with being in a freezer is the super low humidity that the, the seed would survive the, the temperatures, but eventually um, it could become dehydrated. Yeah, I would say you want to freeze it for long-term storage. But when you think about it, most of the plants, well, actually, I take it back. I don't know. But many of the plants never that are in the wild, the, the seeds just drop and they don't ever freeze in the tropics and places near the equator. Up other places, though, they definitely would freeze. So, yeah, I like the refrigeration cooling, uh, like freak them into thinking it's winter time or whatever it does and resetting them so that's my two cents yeah. i don't like freezing them at all i do that too as part of my germination sort of ritual i take them out i just keep them in the refrigerator but i take them out and let them warm up for a couple of days before letting before sort of dropping the seeds to to sort of initiate that break from dormancy I do the same thing when I, I store my seed vault or whatever. It's just a mini fridge. That's where I store all my seeds. And uh, yeah, I'll take them out a couple of days before I decide to plant them. That's a big tip for anybody who's just keeping them at room temp, especially if you're like myself in a warmer climate in Southern California, I don't run air conditioning. Um, if I, I had some seeds from when I first, you know, got back into growing, you know, four or five years back and I went to start germinating a lot of those and a lot of them had way lower germ rates. So keeping it in that fridge, if you're not going to use it like this year, or within the next 24 months, um, I think is definitely a good practice because they'll definitely start to have worse germination than if, like when you got it fresh from that seed bank, um, hopefully if they're not super old already, then you've got a much better chance of getting them to pop. Yeah, I've had all my gear in mason jars since 2019. And those things are still basically what I still have been throwing out and I haven't had any issues yet. So I would definitely suggest, you know, any type of really good sealed type jars if you do plan on storing as well. And another tip I heard that this guy was putting his seeds inside of a thermos and then into the freezer. So that way, if something does happen or you lose power, there's extra protection uh, in that area. So I thought that was a pretty good idea. Yeah, that's smart because then it's double insulated and you don't have to worry about like the lining of the- uh... That is smart, yeah. Yeah, now they got those 24 hour freezer thermos. So, I, mean, I'm, I mean, I'm sure that would help a little bit. Absolutely. And the cost of that stuff's come down and there's a lot of like imitation brands that knock off like the big brands. And so you can get one pretty affordably that'll effectively store your seeds probably for the rest of your life uh, in a safe fashion. So shout out to you, Kyle. That was a great tip from whoever you learned it from. Uh, glad we could pass on that knowledge to the audience because I know a lot of people are seed poppers. Um, some people do start from clones, but 
I think a lot of us are popping seeds. And I wanted to pass it over to Spartan. You've uh, been a little bit quiet, and I saw you token earlier. I want to ask what you're smoking on, and what's the most recent seed that you've popped? Okay, I have no idea what I was talking on because it was a nug that somebody gave me, and they told me, and I completely forgot what it was. But I was testing out this new product I got from my buddy Abolished. And I, let me see. It's from Valhalla Laboratories. And it's a little paintbrush, but it's filled with distillate. And you turn the top and it like corkscrews down a little bit onto the brush and you i just instead of licking my joint clean i just use this and it uh, stuck the joint together and add a little distillate it was kind of cool hey that is really innovative man yeah I've seen, i like, like other, that i saw yeah, this stuff but dope. never infused that's a great idea that's pretty cool yeah and what was your oh what the last night i popped with some auto flowers uh i'm planning to do well, I already put planted two indoor to replace the two that came down, and um, those were a uh, an auto power grape from Morningstar, and that's a, uh, a regular, so it could be male or it could be female. And then right next to it, I planted a feminized auto flower from 2020 Mendocino called uh, Sparkle Face, which is a snow cane cross. And... Um, I did this on purpose because if it so happens to be a male, I'll, I'll just cross the two and get a bunch of autoflower seeds and never run out of flowers. Um, and then I did the same thing. Uh, I just popped those. The last ones I popped were the same two strains, just like what I said. And those are going to go outside this year. And every month I'm planning on putting two more autoflowers outside. And then I'll harvest every month starting in probably end of July, maybe August. I'm excited for you to throw this into action because I know the past few years you've been talking about uh, how you've been planning to implement autos outdoors and uh, it's cool to see because I know you've been growing photo periods outdoors in Michigan for a number of years now. So uh, that's kind of a cool approach to take is just throwing them out segmented and you can see sort of which ones finish at which time of year and all that good stuff. It's more a test for me is like I want to see I think because all flowers are more new and not well known, nobody's going to expect them to be done early for as far as security wise goes. So I'm, I'm only doing, you know, a couple at a time and I'm only doing auto flowers because I'm doing it in my own yard, which is in a neighborhood. So if somebody's going to rip them, I don't really care that much. And I'll know not to try to do a photo period, but if nobody rips them and I can harvest a bunch of autos out there, I might just uh, do a hoop house next year and, and put a big, you know, do one photo period and test it out and, See if I can get away with one, and if I can get away with one, you know, move up from there. One clever uh, Michigander, I heard a story on one of the shows. Uh, they were growing hops. They had like a patio where like the top deck is like uh, it overhangs where the below deck is. So they had hops that would kind of go down and over that balcony. And on the balcony below, there was enough light that would come through. They grew cannabis behind the hops, and uh, that was the way that they hit it, kind of secluded, but. Uh, I, I would imagine it wouldn't get as big or as large of a yield as if you got more direct sunlight, but it was a way that they pulled it off before things were more legal and to avoid uh, somebody coming in and taking your crop. But it's always a bummer when you have to accommodate for rippers, but I think autoflowers oh, yeah. are definitely a good way to I, get around I want to keep the smell down too. So I figured if I had smaller plants like autoflowers, like the first two, they're getting close to getting ready to be transplanted into their final pot. And I'm going to just put them in pots on the back porch. The next two are going to go right in a bed or in the ground somewhere. So I don't want to put too many close to the borders of my property because I don't want to stink out, you know, my neighbors. I'm trying not to be an asshole. 
I'm about to do our first auto flower project at the farm. Uh, full duplex sent us 3,200 feminized seeds. Nice. So it's going to get pretty wild there. Hey, have any of you guys ever grown hops? I haven't. I haven't, but I know somebody who does. Is I it mean, difficult, Spartan? Is it easy? Well, I mean, it, it takes, I mean, it depends on how you're going to grow them because, I mean, the guy I know is a farmer, so he's doing it like a farmer would, like, no fucking around. He took some, right. he had some uh, telephone poles sunk in the ground, and then he strung a, a cable across between the two, and then you can, these hop vines in one year grew, like, all the way to the top. All the way to the top, yeah. All the way to the fucking top, dude. It's amazing. You know what, you know what I just thought about of earlier? That's like the closest thing to cannabis. I want to grow some hops and then feed it to my worms and then feed that shit to my cannabis plants. It's got to be pretty damn close to what it would want. You sure. want to grow the thing that is most related, so maybe most <laughs> likely to have pests that would be able that's to hop true over. too. That's that's Thank my only caveat. That. That's my only yeah. caveat about that. But the nutritional. But if you're treating for one, you're treating for the other. You know? But I would also say that the, like the nutritional balance within that plant might be in the correct balance for the for the cannabis if it's that close, maybe or maybe it'd be closer than say I don't know. There's a book we could find out. Yeah, you know. Oh, shout out to Seven Ten Canuck. He did a post on IG where he uh, uh now I forget what the wording is. The biodynamic accumulation. Yes. Isn't that a brilliant post? I'm going to uh, copy that stuff and find out where you got it and put it in my, my uh, folder because because that's exactly kind of what we're talking about. Because if you want more uh, iron or something, like you could just go to that list and find out what plants you should collect up and, you know, turn yeah, into uh, food for your plants. Yeah. It's, like, it's like a copy of a handwritten list up here. But it's it's like, yeah, you have to know it goes by element. So, like, it doesn't go by plant. It's not, it's not the reverse Yep, yep. The old and natural plus, farming handbook there, you know. Uh, plus, I don't know what, I mean, like it says one thing, right? So you're looking at an element, say, for example, potassium, and it gives you a list of things, but what else comes with it? You know, depending on the plant, you're going to get other things with potassium. It's not just potassium. It's not like going to rawnutrients.com and getting a bag of <laughs> straight potassium. You know, you're getting right. like with, uh, for, like kelp, for example, has a ton of shit in there. So, Well, like, for example, spearmint. Uh, I just made a spearmint tea today because my spearmint grows like fucking crazy. So I just fucking cut it up and pour, you know, pour boiling water over it, let it sit there for about 45 minutes and then strain it off. Uh, but I did spearmint, a little bit of lemon balm and some stevia today. And uh, I'll probably drop a video on how to make that. That's a good idea. Lemon and, balm uh, is like my favorite herb. I yeah, used to grow it a lot and I would, uh, you know, this is sort of a, you know, funny thing, but when I was younger, I felt like I was getting more vivid dreams when I drank like a tisane of lemon balm, pretty obvious, like every day, just about. But, um, you know, I don't know how true that's going to be for anyone else or if that was even, you know, having the effect that I ascribed to it. But I do love me some lemon balm for sure. Yeah, man. And I like, I got lemon chives too. I like the lemon stuff a lot. Me too. I'm in grass. Yeah, so that, I just, so that, I mean, I just, I don't know. I, it may put me in such a good mood today because today was planting day for all my vegetables. I got all my vegetables started. So I just get them from the local uh, greenhouse. I don't even screw around with planting the seeds anymore. But anyway, oh, those things will like, those things will run. Those things will like reseed and they'll like make stolons and 
Well, you I'm know. cheaters. See, I just wait for them to say when the last frost is going to be, and then I don't have to fuck around with moving them in and taking them out. And oh, yeah. Taking them out. I let them do that at the greenhouse. And then when they say, oh, you can plant now, then I go down the greenhouse and get my plants. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> oh, I also wanted to mention that um, one thing, one cool thing for those who love the like green, the volatiles and the aromatic compounds, I'll tell you what, there's a lot of dank hops out there. Um, you know, very the cones will be very very uh, they'll have a very pungent aroma and smell which is why people like to you know hop wash and make You're beer and all michigan, that kind of stuff I, I can't speak for anywhere else but in michigan the chinook variety grows very well those that was one of the ones that grew super fast in that first year i know uh, a lot of citra hop is grown in this area mm-hmm. they call mm-hmm. the san diego has a freeway called the 78 i used to live on when i was in college uh they call it the hop highway where stone brewing company was based out of but in that area, there's just tons of breweries. And uh, I was into the craft brews for a little while. If you drink enough IPAs, you can actually start to just like strains of cannabis. You can be like, wow, I like the citra hop more than the whatever hop. You know, there's a whole bunch of different strains and you can begin to identify flavors and honestly, almost effects like certain ones are more sedating. Some of them will have more mercy and um, it comes across a lot in the beer. Like the summer beers typically have that citra. It's more citrusy. I'm trying to think of, I haven't drank beer in years at this point, but uh, there's a bunch of different hops and uh, they all, like I said, have crazy variety of flavor. Some are more bitter, um, but yeah, I don't know. It's definitely close to cannabis. And like uh, we were talking about earlier, you said, Matthew, that it might be the most likely to attract pests that are going to be on cannabis as well. But my thought would be you're growing the cannabis anyway, and you're going to be hopefully implementing good IPM for cannabis, which would hopefully have a lot of crossover for the hops. So if you're implementing good IPM for one, hopefully it should cross over to the other. I agree with that. Um, uh, Spartan made a great point about how you grow hops though, like with the vines and the having the right like infrastructure. Um, for other viney plants, I think that's super important so that they don't get all bushy or rather not just this massive mass, like a passion fruit can be like that too sometimes. And um Although I, I will agree, there's there's, ton, there's a lot of cool phytochemicals in uh, in hops and can, <laughs> cannabis, of course. Um, so I'm I'm a big advocate for like those really great uh, smells, and maybe it'll be like a nice barrier. Who knows? But we do have that hop latent viroid running around. Um, so that's already in cannabis, careful. you know. Yeah, that's like, already in cannabis. We've I got plenty of it. Careful. Who knows though? Who knows what the um, you know, what the transference rate would be. That'd be a cool thing to find out if it's like, or if some, and if some hot plants are like more resistant or not, I don't really know the data for that. Has anyone ever bit. tried cannabis infused alcohol? Oh yeah. I've had a bunch of that. <laughs> we got a bunch of free samples. My wife and I, she met some like influencer girl uh, who got sponsored by a few of these different companies and we've had infused wine, beer, uh, isn't what you'd call with anything else just a tincture pretty much uh but it, it's like a hoppy you know it's flavored like a beer would taste or it's flavored like a wine would taste but you're just getting the effects and what i would consider an edible timeline for me is 90 minutes to two hours so an hour and a half to two hours with a drink it's usually like 45 minutes to an hour for some people they report feeling it in 20 minutes but i think there's a lot of placebo effect and like literally sugar you're getting a sugar rush when you're drinking some of this shit so like oh i'm feeling uppity like i'm feeling it already it's like (laughs) you're feeling like the sugar in that fucking drink you know so there's a a lot that goes into the effect of that but i would say some of them 
I really like. There's like one-to-ones and two-to-ones and pure THC and pure CBD and um, CBD water, hemp water, all this stuff. It just, um, you have to find the one that's right for you, I guess, like anything. Some of them I've had and they tasted disgusting. Some of them I had, you could taste the cannabis and some you can't. So it's just really uh, like any industry, I guess. It evolves to the point where there's enough variety uh, of flavor and potencies that you'll hopefully be able to find something for you if that's your cup of tea (laughs) or in this case, uh, infused cannabis beverage. Actually, on the point of uh, seeds, uh, you asked people who were popping seeds. I had some friends come over from the, I've mentioned them several times on the show at this point. Uh, they're growing up in the high desert and they came down for some more seeds to grow. And um, I handed them this packet that I got from my friends over at Saigo International, which apparently is some Hardigear, H-A-R-T-I-G-E-A-R on Instagram. Shout out to uh, Alex Hardy. All right. Well, there you go. I see. I knew Jack would have um, the down low. This is um, the hardcore, which was THC, right? Um, train wreck and New Mexico land grant. It says uh, 22 to 30 regular seed open pollinated for dry farm or traditional horticulture. It says on the pack. Um, I only have a picture of it here with me, but I let them go with it and they were able to get some other seeds too. And we'll see how that goes. If you want to learn more about that New Mexico land grant, he does a really good job breaking it down on fucking talking shit with Eagle, uh, Alex Hardy of Hardy Gear, his second appearance. So if you Google or type that into YouTube, the more recent one, it was a few weeks back, but I haven't burned it into my memory banks quite yet. That's why I'm the Wikipedia of cannabis and not the fucking Google of cannabis because I don't know all of it and uh, it takes me a little while. You can edit it though, so. (laughs) Right. But uh, yeah, he's a really interesting character. He's been breeding or he doesn't even consider himself a breeder, I think he says, but he's been making seeds for like 30 plus years and he's got a really interesting perspective and a big shout out to him. And I'm happy you could get those seeds to your friends. And I've remember lots of stories with them. So I'm glad they're sort of a reoccurring character sometime. Maybe they'll have to come on the show. That would be really awesome. I got some random news. More than welcome. Go ahead, Kyle. So when I, obviously, I don't know how many people know this or who's been following that long, but uh, so my day job is uh, I'm an electrician and, uh, you know, this, we're doing a big job right now in, in a town in Massachusetts. And, you know, the general contractor who basically supervises all the trades um, was this older gentleman. He's like in his late, late 60s, I want to say, and still moving around like an animal, which I found interesting. But uh, I was talking to him one day, I was doing some outside work and he was, uh, he was like, yeah, I'm from a uh, you know, I was in the Vietnam War and this and that. And, I, and he heard me talking about weed. And he's like, what do you know about weed? And we're just going back and forth. He's like, yeah, well, I got some. He's like, when I came back from, uh, I forget exactly where, but uh, basically he had told me that he had brought some pan- some legitimate Panama red seeds back that he smuggled from being over there. And he's had them in his freezer since since then. And I was like, oh, man. I was like, well, what are you going to do with them? He's like, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm retiring in about a couple months from now. And, uh, you know, I'm going to pop them. And I was like, man, you might want to be careful because if that's literally all you have, there might be a chance that they might not germinate because the amount of food stored in that seed might not be enough for, you know, to take off. And I was like, I have connections with, uh, you know, somebody that does embryo rescuing. And basically, so he's, and this was just a couple of weeks ago. So he's coming back. Uh, he was on vacation in a couple of days. So I'm going to have some literal era dated, Panama red seeds um, in my hands within the next uh, couple of days or so. So I'm wicked excited about playing with those and seeing, um, you know, what that's even like. So it's pretty interesting. It is awesome. Man. I'm super excited. These next ones, I'm going to pop for these right here. It's probably going to be within the next couple of weeks. Is that a Brandon Russ creation? Yeah, this is the Mac cross. 
what is it the seven or an l i'm not really sure what that is no it's an l <clears throat> okay l. that's the uh limelight okay limelight yeah it's the lamarilla f2 breeder cut times mac v2 the sh it's pretty amazing yeah i can't wait man you know how i love the mac and then you with the limerilla fuck yeah Dude, it's it's really nice. It's a uh, fast finishing. It uh, chunks up really, really nice. Um, the blueberry, the trainwreck blueberry MK Ultra times Mac V two that I did. Wee, that one's got a fucking awesome, amazing terpene profile on it. I'm really excited about that. I'll be what's dropping the, that pretty soon. On this, on this line, this back to this one that I got. Is that what's the high like on that? Is it like a more uplifting or is it more? Like yeah. Okay. Yeah. So most for, for me, the stuff that I've always leaned towards is varieties that are more mentally stimulating. That's what I like. Okay, cool. Yeah. I don't have a whole lot like that. So it better be perfect. I need that. Especially if it's fast finishing, because you usually got to go long to get that <laughs> oh no man um it's really i think it has to do with the the terpene profiles they're very very bright you know it's the like citrus you know they're yeah and pine and it has uh some like the basil so uh that that the ones that i grew out that i uh tested out i had most of them were a pretty pretty consistent as far as uh, what was coming out and it was really much like lemon basil um, with probably some like uh, just like a kind of like a like you know, like the, that musty kind of citrus in there too you know it's it's nice though you'll like it let's see if it veggies fine <laughs> it doesn't veg like mac <laughs> oh Dude, um, they go real fast. Did you keep uh, any of those velvet punch cuts? I remember you were mentioning you liked the more sativa high, and I wasn't sure what the flowering time on that was like for you. I got the uh, velvet punch F, no, not F, the velvet punch F2 uh, Fino 1 is going to flower right now, but I don't remember if I have a cut behind it or not. But I definitely have another run of it. It's uh, going right now. So that's that'll be the... I'm thinking yeah that's the next harvest that's coming down will be that because i remember when you you said you're like this is one of my only ones that's uplifting and i was like oh that's interesting because a lot of everybody's uh stable is a little bit different you know some people carry heavier on the you know more sedating or indica leaning side some people like a lot of sativas in their stable and some people have a mix so i had an interesting flavor that i think they missed out the name is cool don't get me wrong shout out to uh i think it's compound genetics yeah this compound genetics flavor crystals is the name of the strain that I had today. And it's a pretty unique, interesting uh, flavor. Um, but it's the cross is uh, grape pie with crossed to legend orange apricot F2. And I thought because it has an apricot and a grape, you could have called it like grapricot or something silly. I don't know. But uh, flavor crystals is good. It kind of reminded me of like a Jack Herrera though, which didn't make sense looking at the lineage with like an orange undertone. The orange is definitely like, apricot -y, like orange like it's kind of sour like a sour jack career with like an orangey apricot oh, mix in there cool. but definitely different than uh anything that i've had cool. in quite some time i had Sounds uh, good i was hanging out we had a little, a little sesh with the bros and uh tara shout out to tara wilson in the tree 420 they brought me a sample of their um, cheese plate 
and it was grapey, man. It wasn't cheesy at all, and it was grapey. I fucking loved it. It was gassy and grapey. It's like, oh, that is some good shit. I love this some of that. I, I need to get some more of this. <laughs> That's a uh, isn't cheesequake maybe. Uh, is Quirkle in that? Is it yes, like, it is. Yeah. Is Quirkle costs UK Urkel. cheese. Yep. Yeah, so that purple Urkel shines through sometimes. It's like the Velvet Punch. You've got that Larry OG uh, purple punch. It was a Larry OG to uh, Granddaddy Purple. And that Granddaddy Purple, even like generations later, you can get those really artificial candy grape terps and uh, esters coming through that methylanthranolate. That's the uh, phenol I kept with the Velvet Punch was the grapey one. The uh, that, that number one was... A lot smaller, and it was, I would call it the cookie pinot because it was small little nugs, but they were super frosty and they were grape. So that's, I kept that one. It was just so tasty. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely some cookie lineage and morphology in some of the finos, especially at F2. Um, I personally like those, like the stretch with like a bunch of golf ball nugs all the way down the branches. Um, they can yield pretty decent. It doesn't look like they're yielding really well until you like, got it all jarred and weighed up and you're like, damn, those are a lot more dense. Like I've had it to where two ounces fit in one jar versus like one ounce of a different strain fitting in the jar and things like that. But it's um, definitely not a huge yielder when you get some of those phenos, but there's some more OG leaning phenos that have like the more kind of triangle shaped buds. And uh, it's a little bit more like foxtailed and open, but they'll be a little bit heavier. What have you been seeing with the F3s? I haven't actually grown them out. So I just made the F3s. So they're, they just got dried. I just harvested the second plant that was uh, pollinated. The first plant. Tell me about the parents, the mother and the, and the father. So both the mothers turned purple later than my F1. So that was actually kind of opposite to what I was hoping for because you can't really tell if it's going to turn purple until flowering, you know? So like my F1s, they were purple by day 20, 21. Uh, the F2s didn't turn purple until week seven or eight. <laughs> so it was like day 49. And that was picking. I grew them both in the wintertime, very similar climate conditions, RH, same lights, everything. So I was a little bit surprised by that. So I'm curious to see while they were alive, the F2s that I selected, the mothers were really skunky. Like I, my wife said she thought a skunk sprayed and I was like, no, that's actually just a tent. Like I could clearly smell it during weeks five through eight, a lot of skunkiness. And uh, unfortunately it didn't carry on into the dried and cured flower. It became more grapey and gassy with some floral, um, really like interesting floral notes. Um, but yeah, it's, I like them. They're probably a two and a half to three times stretch, maybe three and a half if you get a specific pheno, but the two that I had were at least double to triple stretch. Are you releasing any of those, Jack? Unfortunately, no, because there was, uh, of the 70 packs I sent out, three of the growers found hermaphrodite at F2. So because of that, I don't want to continue on breeding something that has potential hermy issues, despite it being, in my opinion, pretty fire. Um, I just want to, if I was going to get into breeding something that I would release, I'd like to have no herm issues at all. So this is more of a just for fun and, um, you know, it's sending them. It with three and four and then release seeds at that point. Yeah, the hey. uh, thing was the F2 that I used, one of the females, because I pushed the female a lot later to get the more ripe seeds, I would normally take Velvet Punch at nine weeks. I took this at like 11, so an extra two weeks for seed ripening. Yeah. I saw the late flower nanners on one of the two phenos, so that showed me that at least uh, there's some hermy 
genetics in it as well. And most stuff will do that if you push it long, but there's just too many indicators. The other people found them in like weeks three to five. So it was in the earlier stages of flower. So a very true Hermie. The one was light leaks. Uh, another guy had just a one gallon pot of organics, but the other case was, I think, truly just genetic. You know, with that, it's good that you can find a clone, a cut, you know, a clone only that's solid, you know, Jack. That's what I, uh, if you really like something, I encourage everyone, no matter what's happening, try and find one that you could just keep. Yeah. Well, my thought is I love it so much. I just wanted to see how it changed from F1 to F2 to F3. And now I know hey. that I'm not going to take it past F3, but I want to look through the F3s and see if I like the F3s or the F2s more and then look through that for maybe a cut that I'd want to actually work with. The other thing was F2, 1 in 15, I found a really zigzag sawtooth pheno that you actually were Amer the american one was one of my testers he got one of those um, i still have a cut of that yeah smokestacks michigan he didn't keep his cut but probably the most fire of any no offense to spartan but like any of the testers that i sent out <laughs> this dude's zigzag and it, maybe it was just his pheno the zigzag pheno it turned so purple and it was really dense and like when he yeah uh-oh is it everyone the best part uh, oh, I know, right? <laughs> hey, was. I was on the edge of my seat over I got I got I got to go, that. guys. He it up in one of the videos. He drops a nug on the table. Peace out, Brandon. Sorry, I'm cutting out. <laughs> Peace out, Brandon. <laughs> Can you guys Brandon. hear me yet? It says my connections on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Brandon. Back temporarily. Yeah, you. you we only heard up until where the th plant was wicked purple. Yeah. Wicked oh purple. yeah. So and he said. So yeah, I was talking about smokestacks, uh, Michigan. He got the sawtooth pheno and it was a super purple and he dropped one of the nugs and it hit the table and it like fucking sounded like a rock it was super fucking dense and real real frosty but i'd say probably the most impressive of the testers that have posted their flower results and not to put spartan grown down because his looked really fire too he had three phenos that he flowered out and uh yeah, i saw two of them and they looked great this shit that i <laughs> doesn't bother me at all but i still got much of seeds because remember you sent me one <laughs> and it never came and then you sent me a, a replacement and then i got the replacement but then the original finally showed up like two weeks later. So I have a bunch I can, I, I, you know, I can still, I'm still phenoling. Mean, I can still go through more. Hey, that's good to hear, man. And I've got plenty more where that came from. So if you, uh, any of the testers who got them want to grow some more, I'd be happy to send them. But I do send out the caveat that they do have the issues of if there is light leaks, their tendency to herm. I'd say a smaller pot can also make it a tendency <laughs> to herm, but it also might just be in the genetics because I'm not, uh, the American one had one of the phenos, but he also had like three or four phenos. Yeah, that I didn't think if you just herm. clear up, yeah. If I think if you just, I didn't clean up the lower growth. Well, it was on the lower growth of that one. And um, yeah, I, I, I just, I'm sorry. You know, I, I chopped it out. But no, it's fine. That's a, honestly three, a very dude. common with, with the Thin Mint Girl Scout cookie yeah. cut. That's actually known. No, if you don't clean up thing. the lowers, that happens. Exactly. It's, it's a cross so the, of that plant. But the other three were really killer. Everybody loved them and I'd had an opportunity to taste them. And then that one zigzag sort of thing has it i haven't harvested it yet and i have two cuts of that at least and um yeah now that you say that i'm gonna make sure uh it's good you know what i'm saying and i'm gonna keep that one going for sure yeah the f3 generation should be pretty crazy jack because uh i know every time i've jumped into the f3s of like you know like released hybrids like it gets crazy and there's so many different variations that you can just completely go whatever uh different directions with it so I think that might be because I've heard a theory that our, what we call F1 is actually not the true F1. Oh, F1 100%. doesn't happen until you do the cross of two different parents, you get those right. siblings, and then you do an actual true F1. So what I'm calling my Velvet Punch F1 is probably like the initial cross. I actually made the F1 by filial generation selecting. I had a brother and a sister 
cross to each other, which is more like the true F1. So what you're saying is like what I'm calling F3 is really the F2. And that's where there's going to be tons of variation, which is what a lot of people say. Like you see all the grandparents, not just the mom and dad. You see all the grandparents start popping up. So I'm curious about that because I was wondering. You know, in certain kinds of plant breeding, you always start with homozygotic uh, parent plants. And then you get uh, F1 that's purely heterozygotic. And then things go crazy after that if you try to get to F2, F3, and you just never do. You always breed new F1 seeds. Um, but it, it entirely depends on what you're starting with in terms of sort of the, the genetic makeup of the parents. Um, but usually, you know, I'm familiar <laughs> with that in plant breeding. Usually we're referring to a hybrid with an F1. So it has two different parents. Um, it's not, they're usually unrelated parents. Very true. That's, That's my understanding. Yeah. So I wanted to just read out the Velvet Punch genetics because it's a crazy polyhybrid. I didn't make it originally. Shout out to my buddy Doja DNA, D-O-J-A DNA on Instagram. He sent me the seeds for free. I grew them. I loved them as well as his Spiked Punch, which was another Purple Punch cross. But here's the Velvet Punch. Uh, it is Purple Punch is the mom, which is Larry OG crossed the Granddaddy Purple, which he crossed to his Cookie 7 which is Thin Mint Girl Scout Cookie crossed to Black Velvet Kush, which is Chem 4 crossed to Mexican Sativa. And then he crossed that with OG Kush. So all of that mixed into one thing. So it's like tons of propensity to Herm. You've got Chem in there. You've got Cookies in there. you got OG in there. All those lineages, for anybody who doesn't know, come from bag seeds, every single one of them. So um, I think that there's definitely a possibility. And like I said, the Thin Mint Girl Scout Cookie specifically, I know guys who run that if you don't clean up the bottoms before week two or three, uh, and there's like any stuff on the lower that's not getting good light and airflow, there's almost always gonna be uh, Hermes. So those are the big caveats with that. But like I said, I wouldn't wanna release anything that I have to make all these caveats and, and excuses for, cause I don't wanna unintentionally herm out somebody's garden. That's why I said to everybody, these are testers, they're untested. <laughs> you know, this is your part of the testing generation. If you find something, just let me know. And I'll let the people that have them know so they can choose to not grow them. They could eat them, feed them to a bird, like lucky, or flush them down the toilet if they want, or give them to somebody who might want them. Jack, I'd be interested in some of the stuff that you just crossed if you were willing to send some my way. Yeah, man, I've got uh, more than I know what to do with, and I'll uh, be happy to send them over to you. Yeah, yeah definitely. The one thing I would say is if you ever do use it in the work, just uh, give credit to Doja DNA, because that guy is like uh, not well enough known in my opinion of all the stuff that I've had the pleasure of growing, his is at the top of my list as far as like quality of breeding. Um, just vigor from seed. I don't know if it's because like he grows in a greenhouse, he gets lots of really good sun up there in Northern California. Um, but like Subcool, rest in peace, one of my favorite breeders, side by side, two different grows, two different strains, uh, every single time. His germination, like the sub stuff was a lot smaller. Uh, you know, Doja's stuff was just faster from seed. and I really like the quality of both end products, but when one of them grows faster from seedling to veg through flower and it produces more and it's just as frosty, like, and you get twice as much of it, it was a pretty easy decision for me. Yeah, I was, I was going to say maybe subs, uh, seeds were older, but when you finished your sentence with all that, yeah. But uh, you know what? I got to take off, everyone. I'm sorry. I'm going to drop out early, but uh, it's great being here and I'll catch you all in a bit or whenever on the internets and uh yeah good to see you everyone and uh care, yeah brother. peace out
Our love, Take it easy, man. Thanks again for coming, the American one. He let us know beforehand. This wasn't like he uh, just got bored and decided to jump out. So uh, cheers, peace, and love to at the underscore American one with a Keens on Instagram. Uh, he's at the American one on YouTube. So definitely support him. Uh, he's made some really killer crosses. A lot of people find some good shit in his Amy's Aces, or Amy Aces, I should say. And uh, he's got another one called Godiva. And uh, he's done some killer stuff with that Cheesequake cross. Spartan, you were saying that the Cheesequake you had was more grapey. And uh, I'm curious if there's any other flavors that you picked up off of it. It was kind of gas, too. So it's gas at first, and then it finishes the grape. It kind of leaves you with that. And it's one of those ones that, you know, we were in a circle. And when you pass the joint, you can taste it almost until the time the joint comes back. I mean, it, like, lingers in your mouth. I love shit like that. So, uh, you know, because for me anymore, when I'm smoking a joint, I, I want the flavor because I'm usually not feeling a high from it. <laughs> So if it tastes good, then at least they can enjoy it that way immediately, you know, from, from the get-go, right from the first puff. I'm with you on that, even the dry puff. But uh, sometimes you don't even need to take a dry puff. If it's terpy enough, you can taste it in the smoke, which is usually a great indication. So cool stuff was often that way for me. I actually got really surprised because every year we put aside one of our best nugs of each harvest and jar it and have it on 420, which is now uh, Lady Greenstock and I's wedding anniversary. This year we were on a road trip for our honeymoon and we met up with a uh, sun grown 707 and he had grown subcool strain called uh, Doc Holidays, which is Huckleberry Cookies to Hellfire OG. And the Huckleberry Cookies is like a blueberry cookies. Hellfire OG is more of an OG, which is kind of gassy fuel. So when I grew it, it smelled like gas and pine and like fuel like an OG, like the whole time. There's no blueberry scent detectable at all, for me at least. And when I got the Sun Grown 707's house, after like five or six months curing, I pull out this jar of Doc Holidays. And I had been talking on podcasts about, oh, my Doc Holidays was, I got, must have had a super Hellfire OG leaning Fino because there's no blueberry at all, no, no blueberry at all. I pull out the jar at Sun Grown's house. <laughs> he goes to break it up. He's like, dude, you said this thing has no blueberries. Like, smell it. And I fucking smelled it. And it hit me in the face like blueberry candy. Like, it cured up to a more sweet. And that's never happened to me before. I usually get those sweeter smells earlier in the cure. But I remember DJ Short always talks about how blueberry is usually one of those things that gets better as it cures, it's better with age. And that was one of the things he actually liked about it and why he kept it and read with it for a long time. So that was definitely a surprise for me with that. Uh, I always forget the name, fucking Doc Holidays, but uh, it's good stuff. That sounds like wine. <laughs> That's the goal. I, Frenchie talks about how most cannabis products get worse with age and it's a constant degradation. So like say your harvest here is worth let's say $2,000 per pound. And then over time, it's just going to gradually start dropping off. And by the time it's two years old, it's worth next to nothing. Uh, with hash, he really liked it because hash can actually go up in value or quality over time. Because once it's processed and pressed a certain way, like how he makes the temple ball, uh, you get more hashishine, which was not even there before. So um, some people don't consider that a degradation. Like People that are looking for hash who want hashishine can say like, there might even be qualities of this aged hash that makes it more desirable and even better with age versus uh, a lot of the products that just get kind of yellowed out and lose their flavor over time. Yeah, I was wondering if that was like, um, you know, I don't have the knowledge here, but uh, you know, whatever it is that makes up that flavor of blueberry, I wonder what, if it's just another terpene that is dominating the flavor at the beginning, like you said, the gas or whatever um, flashes off and, and degrades. And uh, if I don't, if there's a, if it is a, if it's a precursor to something else or if it just flashes off or what it is, but with that removed, then the blueberry comes out. You know what I mean? 
No, that makes sense because actually gas is one of the things that I think does go semi-early and it might be an alcohol or an ester. I like the fuel in OG. It's uh, commonly found earlier in the cure, I would say. Uh, it, it can linger around, but I would say, like, you, you're probably right on that. Uh, one of the things I thought I had a rabbit hole on my page saved of the blueberry, but it's a combination of esters and terpenes. Like linalool is one of them in blueberry, which you wouldn't kind of expect because it's floral. You think of like lavender, but there's... Um, limonene as well as part of it a little bit of a citrusy element but it is a combination of a lot of minor things in there that make up the blueberry scent yeah that was the thing i was yeah i was thinking that too in my head is like what is it you know of the major 20 or 30 terps that they even test for it could be one of the minor terps just be having you know uh just a super tiny amount of it is all it takes to switch it from something totally different to blueberry or switch it from strawberry to blueberry, you know, or something like that. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, actually, it, it can be like 0.5% of a terpene can make it super distinct, like enough so that it'll be called, like, let's say limonene, for example, everybody knows like a citrus. Um, it'll be called like lemon haze when it has 0.5% limonene, but it has such a citrusy note that hits your nose. It's the first thing when you smell it, you're like, oh, this smells citrusy. So they call it lemon haze, even though it's only 0.5% of the volume of the weight of the flower that you're consuming, like 20 plus percent of it's probably THC and other stuff. But that lemon is what is the signature note. Yeah, that's yeah, why these so percentages don't tell us anything. It, <laughs> they tell well, us nothing. I mean, and people bit. will have different sensitivities. Whenever when you mentioned that, it always reminds me of how like, you know, like with the, like you, you buy store-bought like isopropyl alcohol and they have like bitterance in it that like say you don't drink it. Um, but like, even so, like the few, what are called fusel alcohols, like when you're making alcohol, those, the, that's German for, um, I think waste or trash or something like this. Basically they're undesirables that you sometimes get in the fermenting process, uh, especially when like, you don't have a lot of control over the heat and, uh, we're, we are very sensitive to some of those alcohols that, that make the alcohol kind of like, um, hot or, um, there are other terms that people use for it. It's just not like a, for a lot of people, it's not really a desirable taste, but yet there's not you even need, yeah, I don't even know if skunky is right, the right word, but like, anyways, if people are, people are able to be sensitive to it with such a small, like amount, um, you know, it's kind of the same thing here. Like what you're saying, some people are just going to pick up certain things others won't, or, you know, that particular compound for most humans is just going to be, sort of something that we pick up generally the fusel thing that you're talking about genetic memory farms when he was talking about making beer and uh, fermenting kombucha he mentioned the fusel alcohols and they are less desirable but i think they could be potentially dangerous to us too if we consume them too much maybe because they're impurities or something but it's one of those things that we've like you said evolved to even have a tiny tiny little amount of it be super detectable and undesirable so uh, people tend to avoid them thankfully and um, yeah it's definitely not what people want to happen with that process for sure I lost my train of thought a little bit. Um, oh, okay. I was talking about, you were talking about different sensitivities of people's nose. And um, I was, it made me think of how I work with a few different families that have therapy dogs for their kids. And I'll occasionally have to take their dogs for a walk 
and even the dogs, uh, and this is, might be obvious to most people, but they have different sensitivities of their nose. Like one dog, it'll walk right along the street and not really get too distracted by anything. And not because of its behavior. I think it's the breed of dog isn't known for having as strong of a nose. And you walk with one that's like got a golden retriever or a bloodhound or anything that has a stronger scent detector. And it is stopping at every little piss spot where any other dog has been for the last week. And it's like pulling you around and like looking at every little thing. So um, I think Matthew, you've mentioned in the past that you don't have a very um, like strong nose for cannabis, at least in some cases, like it has to be very potent for you to smell it where, and a lot of people will like give me a sample and I'll detect little things that maybe they're like, Oh, I didn't smell that until you said it. And now I can pick it up or like, when it's broken up. So maybe I have like a more acute, like uh, there needs to be a smaller amount of certain things for me to detect it. But then with like that blueberry in the last case, maybe I'm less uh, susceptible to detecting certain things. So it really comes down to everybody has a different um, set of systems in their nose that, <laughs> helps them detect what they smell and taste, interestingly enough. Yeah, and I see in the chat people are talking about uh, hot alcohol, like having like some people are mentioning the sake, um, which is traditionally uh, given a hot. I, it's, it's a, that's just the word that, they, that some people use for it. And I, I haven't made alcohol in a long time, and I haven't drank alcohol in a long time either. But um, yeah, it's just it's kind of gross. And I think I've talked about it earlier where um, – the, the sort of anecdote of a guy who was homebrewing. Um, he wanted to homebrew because he homebrewed on a yacht. And basically because the yacht wasn't temperature controlled, he would get these fusel alcohols, but for nostalgic reasons, and because he didn't know any better, he would drink it. Um, and it was like, he liked it or whatever. And then, you know, years later when he tried to homebrew his house he found he didn't get the same taste and eventually the person who told me the story uh he thinks that's what they came about too was that it was because he was grow he was literally fermenting in suboptimal conditions but uh that's what he wanted <laughs> because that's what he grew up and have all these fond memories attached to homebrewing with so i think that was kind of an in that's kind of an interesting parallel i think to people who grow cannabis and are looking for certain flavors or certain other profiles, well, whether they're good, bad, or neutral, um, you know, our nostalgia can really direct what we want and what we don't want in some cases. And there's nothing wrong with that, like inherently. I do recall that story and it reminds me of a quote or just a joke, I guess some people like the smell of their own farts and it's like, <laughs> so people, everybody seems to prefer their homegrown more than anything. Um, and it just seems to be the case across the board. Like if you ask 10 home growers, like, do they like their bud or bud from somebody, some other grower locally or the dispensary, I'd say like nine out of 10 of them are going to be like, I like my bud the most and it's the best. Um, but we have a good question. Thank you to Spartan Grown for sending it in the chat from Uncle Rick, who asks, I got some alarming info. A good friend picked up a cannabis virus. He had it tested. It came back diagnosed as hop latent viroid. Anyone had experience with it? Uh, we talked a little bit about it earlier in the show when we were talking about maybe growing hops alongside. The one thing I'll say is most notably, like if you Google hop latent viroid cannabis, um, one of the big things you'll see is like uh, a group out here known as Dark Heart Nursery was giving out clones and they spread a lot of hop latent viroid and then they found out a treatment or a cure or whatever you want to call it to uh, 
make the plants better, but they've got a really good documentation and YouTube presentations where they'll actually show like the hoplite and infected clone versus the clean one side by side. And you can see the one is like way frostier and way healthier. And then they're like the other one, you might just think like, oh, that's a shittier plant or it's just not as good of a genetic, but it's the exact same cut infected with hoplite and viroid. Um, the treatment is basically tissue culture with a heat treatment and a cold treatment from my understanding. But some people will say that they have proprietary techniques. So I'm curious what Matthew has to say about that as our resident IPM specialist and curious if anybody else on the panel has thoughts after that. Definitely. So, um, so hot plane viroid is a plague. It is uh, particularly problematic because as the name sort of implies, um, it is uh, latent. So you don't always get the symptoms or the, or the obvious symptoms until like later in its development. Um, so that allows it to passively move through people's grows, especially one, people who don't know what the symptoms are. Uh, and two, since they're not very unique, like stunting, and uh, sometimes you get more severe symptoms as well, like what Jack's talking about sometimes, especially if you're familiar with the plant that you're growing already and, and what cannabis like as a healthy plant as a really thick budded, you know, dank plant might be, and you're not getting that, and you don't seem to be having any of the sort of issues, uh, sort of for no reason this is happening, and that could be because of hoplite and viroid. Uh, there are other things, though, that can stunt a plant that are not even biotic in nature, so that makes it kind of difficult to really know. Uh, it does um, travel mechanically, and there's some research that shows that it can pass vertically through seeds, so not only can it move horizontally from one plant to another plant, and especially so if you're like taking cuttings and then you're using those that equipment like scissors or whatever, um, you can spread the, the viroid this way. Um, Some people are saying that it, is, it could be as little as a, a branch on one that's infected touching another branch or rubbing. Yeah, it. It, absolutely. Is that that the, is the yeah. case. That is definitely the case, right, which is scary. Um, but depending then, on where you are, I think the majority of the instances, it's probably better to just cut the fucking thing down and get it the hell out of there. Absolutely. Oh, so yeah, Medi I totally agree. Medi Cropper on YouTube has been fighting this for the last year solid. He's got a commercial facility in either Oregon or Washington, and he's really documented like the most I know about Hoplite and Viroid is from his firsthand experience with hundreds of plants, like eight flower rooms. It's like a mitten canico, but run a lot worse. Uh, no offense to Medicropper, but you guys just have a lot tighter ship and more uh, workers over there that know what they're doing. He's got a lot of like newer guys that he'll go to Europe for like months at a time and then he'll come back and the grows all messed up. So it's like grow rescue. And I would see the healthy plants and the unhealthy plants. And you could see literally certain times a branch that would be like start starting to flop over on the other one it would almost be like a little discolored like a lesser green almost like a grayish and it would start to like slump onto the other plant and then sure enough if it hit that plant you could even see like the chain reaction of oh this plant had it it spread to that plant and now that plant spread it to that plant and it can be a nightmare to deal with he's been like i said over the last year cutting out mothers trying to find the healthiest ones and uh, starting with new stock here and there and uh, it's been a battle but definitely if anybody's followed many cropper on youtube he is an interesting character. I've learned more about him since watching his battle with this, but um, just for the sake of this conversation, I think he's got a lot of firsthand documentation of fighting with it and how it spreads throughout a cultivation space. So, yeah, it'll, it'll go through really quickly. And that's kind of like the main issue um, that like, it's not obvious. And so it's kind of a silent killer 
And the real thing is that if you, you can just have, you can just take in one cutting and transfer it to all of the other plants that you've had for years and years and years and your mother plants and that sort of a thing. So I expect this to get a lot worse than it, than before it gets better. Not only because there's no conventional treatment um, available currently, but also because like big nurseries get it. And even with all of their really great um, biosecurity and uh, um, tissue culturing and everything, uh, things still get through. This is also true in like um, horticulture with like impatient spot, or I always get that name except impatient secretic spot virus. Is that how it goes? Anyways, there's, or like rose rosette disease. I was, um, I was, uh, I experienced that actually at a, at a rose growing facility and um, it came from these Dutch growers and they like shut down everything, cleaned everything, spent millions of dollars in this like huge international facility. It rolls up uh, four months later and they get rose rosette disease again, which is vectored by a russet mite actually, not cannabis russet mite, not hemp russet mite, but um, this special rose russet mite and uh, it's a real problem. <laughs> so it definitely it? happens. What about in the root zone? Like if you're in a, a hydroponic cloner, uh, is there a chance that you could infect through the root zone if one was infected? Oh, yeah, it, like through water? Like the whole, yeah, would it through the water or in a bed? Like if you're grown in a bed or in outside, if you have one that's infected with the plant next to it, would it be able to transmit it through the root zone or no? I don't, I don't think so. I don't know, but I don't think so because um, so hoplite and viroid is it does it doesn't have that capsid it doesn't have that um, protein uh, shell that a lot of viruses have so it and despite that apparently um, isopropyl alcohol doesn't actually kill it just dehydrates it which is kind of a, a funky thing that's why you have to use special things like vicron or like which is a product that you can use or like bleach for example to like actually kill it um, so I wouldn't expect it to be able to like weather the storm of like moving through the soil or moving through water at, you know, by any like particularly um, like, like long period of time, a lot of viruses and in this case, viroids aren't really very host uh, or not very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They're not very stable outside their host. That is common Luckily. for plants and humans. Uh, fortunately in this case, actually, the one thing I was going to say about the cloners less so than hoplite and viroid that I'd be worried about would be pythium. Matthew, would you think pythium would be something that would be spreading or are there any other? Absolutely. Like fusarium? fusarium, pythium, even sometimes botrytis can be um, vectored through the root zone. Um, there's foliar botrytis. Like people, people mostly are familiar with it in cannabis as being like a wound or something vectored by like a budworm or something, or it just like uh, infects like the inert floral tissue. But um it can infect the foliage of a plant and it, it can also go through the roots. Although I will admit those are a lot less um, common, much less common. And I'm not sure I, how common it is in cannabis. I got a question for Matt and you guys have might have already said it. So if I'm repeating it, I apologize, but it, can, can Mary stem tissue culture practices uh, take care of basically a majority of all those things? Or is that, is that not true? Yeah, definitely. Like that's the super advantage of like, like you say, like Mary stem, um, or like tissue culturing in that way, because you're essentially, you're essentially trying to take some, a few cells that have none of the problem. Now viruses, um, you know, that they infect those that, that like infect the cells and like use those to reproduce. 
you know, those, that's why you need the Marisim culture because it's very difficult, like besides that to really get um, a clean, like a, a host of cells, but with Pythium and like fungal pathogens and bacterial pathogens, um, those are a lot larger and the way that they sort of colonize the plant is different enough um, that I think it's even more easier to do with Maristem, but I don't do tissue culturing myself, um, but that's how I understand it to be. I'm trying to learn the tissue culture, but I just wanted to reiterate something that Matthew said, um, because I think it's an important point. He just mentioned how the Dutch Rose operation spent millions of dollars shutting down their entire operation, cleaning everything out, even if like, let's say they use tissue culture and then got rid of it that way. They got the same issue four months later because they looked at the problem from right here, not from like 10,000 feet, so to speak. They were worried about, oh, these plants have this spotted issue, right? They wanted to get rid of that issue. So they just cleaned up the plant, but they didn't realize or think about the fact that we have this pest that's vectoring the issue. So they were short-sighted in their solution. They solved it for four months and then guess what? Now they're right back to square one. So they could shut everything down and try and clean it out again, or they could you know, implement better IPM to hopefully prevent getting it in the first place. So you could tissue culture that one clone and get a beautiful, healthy mother. But if you go and put it back in that greenhouse where it got the issue from, for example, then you're just going to keep on having the same issue over and over. So you have to kind of look at it from a holistic perspective. Yeah, somebody just told me recently, and I'm sure you guys might be able to school me a little bit better because uh, I'm not educated in this, but uh, somebody I know that got, had powdery mildew, they basically got rid of it, but then still had a mother that was, I don't want to use the word, the term internally has it, but like, is there such thing like that, Matt, where like they can literally hold it, maybe like just say as if we had it in our bloodstream versus on an open, open skin, uh, you know, in a human, but just in a plant, in plant retrospect. So uh, powdery mildew isn't a systemic pathogen, but there are situations where um, not, it doesn't systemically colonize the plant. So it stays on the sort of epidermis, right? The sort of like the top layer of the plant um, and siphons uh, the, the sort of the cells that are close to that um, side. But you can have like, how do I put this? Um, I don't know if antigen is the right word. It's certainly the right word for like humans and certain diseases of humans, but like you can maybe detect reactions or like things that are associated with a pathogen, you know, in the plant like body that are separate from the, the organism itself, but it's not like a spore or anything. Does that make sense? Yeah. So Matthew, with that question, um, with the powdery mildew, a lot of people notice or believe that maybe it's on the plant um, and they're not seeing it until like the stretch is happening or bolting or whatever is going on. Um, is that just because it's a visual thing or is it because maybe with like cannabis, for example, when it's going to stretch, you're also changing environmental conditions, like instead of 18 hours or 24 hours of light uh, with no darkness, they can be in 12-12 where there's 12 hours of darkness where maybe there's more moisture in the air that could breed the conditions for that powdery mildew to sporulate or something like that? That's a good question. Um, so usually it's because like with, with powdery mildew specifically, um, the initial germination of the spore and development is um, pretty much invisible to us for several days. And 
but when a plant bolts, you're right. Physiological processes change, environmental processes change in nature. If it's a, you know, if it's one of those scotoperiod, photoperiod plants, right? Where it's like, where it's changing with the environment. And also you're right, humans who are cultivating the plant will also change things because they're trying to initiate a change, right? So all of those factors are in play. Um, but like Botrytis, for example, is a systemic pathogen, can exist in the plant with basically no visual symptoms unaided. Um, and then once the plant's physiology starts to change or if it senesces or um, you know anything like that, like Botrytis is very... Um, associated with reproductive tissues in plants generally. Um, it tends to like to infect like inert and, and back me up MJ Coco. I think this is the right way to describe it. I've, I think I learned it this way. Uh, like petals and things are like inert tissue, right? Yeah, unlikely to get infected. Oh, uh, well, I was, I was told that it was likely to like, it is infective, like it's infectable at least for botrytis, but like, it's like, associated with inert tissue because that tissue is not really like living in in a way or does it's not like vascular right yeah there's certain i'm not sure about what part of the plant <laughs> i think different flowers are actually different than that that's definitely true too um i guess like i was thinking about it in my before time in the Ger like gerbera daisies and like those large petals right you know um but uh so like with cannabis, well, I was I th thinking about it specifically with, with sort of the morphology of the cannabis flower. Um, yeah, yeah, that okay. would be different for sure. But yeah. it is, a, but I do find that it's associated with those structures. But like that's why, and that's one reason why I think cannabis specific research is so like integral because yeah, it's different. You, you can't. It's definitely it's different enough that I wouldn't feel safe saying that's for sure this way. I think um, all flower species are so different and individual in that regard. I mean, flower anatomy in plants is so interesting and peculiar. And if a plant is going to have some sort of peculiarity, it's in its reproductive organs. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think that in order to be really mature as an in, as a sort of horticultural, agricultural industry focused on, on a flower, we need to, to study it in particular. Absolutely. Completely. And we are definitely still gleaning too much from sort of associated crops. So Mally's Garden asked a good question, I believe. Um, and like you were just talking about, Dr. MJ, flower to flower, it can vary from like a type of flower to a different type of flower and in his question he's asking even about within a cannabis like from one strain to another or even it could be like the soil conditions or something else but i'll just read his question out he says we know that spores are all around so why are some plants more likely to be infected than others which is well, genes a are question. a big genes genes would be like the the obvious one right like different plants will have different sort of resistance genes also their environment might make them more or less susceptible so like i talked about the chestnut blight several times before uh, you get situations where a pathogen will just run roughshod through an entire population hundreds you know hundreds of, mi of miles and thousands and thousands of kilometers and then the only plants that survive are those in refugia where they were just separate enough and they were sheltered enough that they just didn't happen to get it. This is in a natural setting, but I think it sort of speaks to the realities of even in cultivation and why people shelter their plants for this exact reason. So there's a ton of reasons why people would want to look for 
uh, different plants and why just because there are spores everywhere, it doesn't guarantee one way or another that you're going to get um, infected. Mr. Bacillus says you can remove fruiting bodies and mycelium on leaf surface, but haustorium can remain. H-A-U-S-T-O-R-I-U-M can remain. It's a hastoria, a singular hastorium and multiple hastoria. Hastoria are the, I guess you could call them like the roots of a powdery mildew um, uh, organism. So like they sink into the, they, they siphon out the resources from the plant cell cytoplasm. So one thing I wanted to mention was uh, Scatola la Granola, who is a semi-controversial figure, depending on who you ask in the community. He mentioned a while back about powdery mildew that in evaluating soil samples throughout a greenhouse, when there was plants like side by side, sometimes there'd be a plant that had no powdery mildew in a case where another plant with PM had fallen over on top of it and it had not gotten infected at all. And what they did was they checked out the soil samples from the pots where the ones were infected versus not infected. And I don't know if it was like proprietary or if I'm just not remembering what it was, but the ones that were like basically healthier, they could predict or he could predict um, which ones would have PM or not have PM just looking at the soil samples. And I mean, I guess in retrospect, he would have seen the plants because he was out there sampling. I don't know exactly how the whole thing worked out, but it, their claim was that by just an, a soil analysis, they could say that these are the ones that they believe or thought most likely to have PM or whatever the uh, infection was in the greenhouse. Yeah, I don't know about all of that personally. I feel like um, maybe I could, maybe I would agree with that if it's that like the soil is, maybe it's got some microbes in it that are going to confer some resistance qualities and traits. That would be a really great thing. That's maybe. my thought. Like Spartan said, I think 70 to 80% was reduced based on having a certain type of trichoderma in the soil, if I'm remembering correctly, Spartan. Trichoderma, yep. And it was the Haas or whatever, the trichoderma with the H. Uh, has Hazarinum or whatever it is. But, um, but the other thing is that like, you know, a plant could get all the right nutrients that it needs. And this is where I think that I sometimes, um, this, this statement is sometimes contentious for some people. But um, uh, if you have a plant uh, somebody earlier in the chat also asked, like, if you have, um, what are resistance genes and how do you isolate them? Well, like, it's also not even enough to say resistance gene, because those genes are always trying, there's a, they're interacting with other genes in the plant, they're interacting with the particular virulence traits and abilities of the genes of the pathogen. So there's that sort of battle happening. There's the environment, uh, which is the stage in which these two actors are fighting, right? Um, so, so like I said in the F, uh, the Future Canvas Project podcast from uh, a couple of days ago, or for just, or even just today or yesterday, <laughs> um, it's dynamic. It's a dynamic process, and so it's it's like, for example, with the tropical wilt, uh, um, not virus, but with the uh, Pythium, was it? There's a tropical wilt problem for um, banana, and I'm forgetting the pathogen specifically, but when they do resistance um, uh, breeding, when they're trying to breed in resistance genes and resistance traits into these bananas, um, you might get a resistance to one pathogen, but then confer a susceptibility to another one, 
or susceptibility to certain environmental stressors or things like that. So it's, it's definitely like tumultuous to say the least, very complex. Um, it's ever evolving. Yeah, exactly. No then there's epigenetics there's too, epigenetics right? and the breeding that's happening in combination so it makes it especially complicated but i wanted to give uh smiley's garden a dedicated listener a chance to chime in they say scott says that there is a direct correlation to the level of omycetes in the soil and the likelihood of pm if levels are kept below a threshold the risk of pm should be gone is the claim oh my seeds and uh so um, those are called water molds and, um, a lot of them are pathogenic, but that's not to paint the entire group, uh, incorrectly or wrongly, um, uh, with one brush. Um, I would though ask like how this is the case because like what's going on there, um, there are a lot of different kinds of seeds. So I feel like whenever people tell me like, oh, if you have enough bacteria or if you have enough fungi or if you have a balance, like, you know, not to not to be like pedantic, but like which bacteria, which fungi, which seeds? I shouldn't um, uh, quote him as much because I actually don't believe in too much of what Scott's doing. I think he has some interesting points from time to time, but I don't know if I 100% buy into his thing. And Coot, who I respect a bunch, really hates Scott and, and shit talks a lot of what he has to say. But um, my thought here is, and I've said this on another show about something unrelated, but correlation does not equal causation. Like we see ice cream sales go up every summer and we also see murder go up every summer. So <laughs> somebody could say eating ice cream causes one to murder more often. That would be correlation equaling causation. It's not true. We just know that murder happens more in the summer, usually because when people are hot, they're more pissed off and it's more accessible in certain parts of the world where like there's snow and stuff where you leave footprints and it's harder to travel. There's less murder in the wintertime because it's harder to actually do it. So there's like the correlation causation thing isn't a good argument. And I think um, Scott comes out of the, um, I believe the Ingham camp um, and they make good compost over there by all accounts, I haven't tried any, but he has kind of branched off into his own thing and he's doing his own consulting. So I think being so new in the field or newer in the field, he might have some theories and ideas and hypotheses that he's putting out there. And um, I'm not sure how much science and data there is to back all of them. That's why I wanted to run it past you. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, honestly, I think it's totally, um, I think it's totally fine to share that information. And I think it's great to have the conversation. Um, And I don't mean what I was saying earlier in like a, you know, particularly snarky way, I, I am genuinely curious, because um, I do think microbiome effects can be beneficial. But I, d- I do feel as though people just say that, and then they don't like go further. And I guess I'm one of those people who can, like, actually sort of tell a little bit more than that surface level stuff. So I'd be curious to know which ones and, and why. Um, well, because usually... Like- that his were at least real world is one thing that I do like because something else I see that I think is a common misapplication in the cannabis space is people will take a lab study where right. it's like a petri dish something like this eats that in a petri dish and maybe it would work in the real world and, and you could try it and you might find the next big thing for IPM or, or something else but sometimes the lab because it's so sterile and so just different than most people's grow environment doesn't translate or correlate to what is happening in the environment so that's why i always like that you've advocated in the past that people actually try putting these things into practice like with the um 
one of the predator mites in the banker plants, you and Brandon actually made that project happen. You did it in real life mm -hmm. to see, it's like, okay, this is a theory or philosophy. Let's put it into practice and see how well it works. And like, how long do they stick around for? Like, is this actually worth implementing from a cost and effect standpoint? Yeah, Smiley in the chat saying that um, Scott is actually looking with a microscope and quantifying the soil biology and Coot is only guessing about what could be happening big difference and I guess so but like so then then it sounds like you would know then what exactly the OMICs he's talking about are and and that sort of a thing but like I just feel like people never actually follow up with the specifics they'll just say fungi or bacteria and people will just roll over for that and I don't I, I, I don't personally because I know that the world is very dynamic and, and ever-changing and a lot of science, a lot of, as much as I love my empirical studies and everything, quote unquote, I'm very well aware that a lot of stuff can't be totally reproduced. Um, and certainly, like you say, laboratory studies are not field studies and field studies, you know, you don't just have one field study and that like discounts every single thing, unless it's such a bold claim as like, this never happens. Well, then you only need one study to confirm that that can happen. Um, called anecdotal science right there but right. the interesting thing is like tad hussey was one of the guys pushing like the the conversation coot was kind of digging into scott about was talking about compost teas and like if they're effective or not or if they're needed and um it, what it reminded me of is conversations we've had on this very show in the past of you might be able to look at a microscope but because we've figured this out in that field, not me personally, much smarter people than myself in that microbiology and other related fields know that just micro uh, scope work is not fine enough detail to identify exactly which organisms. It might put you in the ballpark, but until you genetically test them, that's why they go to genetic testing at this point. They're not using uh, visual identification anymore. Yeah, using... microbiologists don't do that. They, uh, I mean, I mean, they do for certain things, absolutely, especially like uh, my mind goes to like, um, like when you're looking at blood samples, for example, certain things like are, are very obvious. Um, but yeah, like not only are there various isolates that are genet that are uh, morphologically basically identical, but genetically don't have to be. So that's one, one example right there. Um, another one is that you get bacteria, for example, or even fungi, you've got anamorph, telomorph forms, you know, sexual, asexual forms. Uh, and bacteria, you even got some bacteria that have, uh, um, you know, they have cryptic forms or they can change their form very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess very often, um, to put it simply. So like, yeah, like visual symptoms aren't, aren't the be all end all in all cases. Well, and like people put a high value on that. They're like, oh, this person has taken so-and-so's course and they know how to do microscope work. And I'm like, that's sort of like training somebody how to like drive a Flintstones car when they're going to learn how to drive. It's like, that's the technology of the past. You got to train them on what is the current thing. So like PCR, to my understanding, is what most biologists are using to identify the genetic. They're actually taking the entire system and they could say, this is the genetic code of this particular microorganism and they can identify exactly what it is versus a visual, you're just sort of guessing. So it's like, I thought it'd be cool to learn it because I love compost teas. Like maybe I can microscope my own compost tea and maybe that'll be beneficial. But then when I actually talk to the people that have more knowledge in those fields, uh, it seems like it almost is a misguided um, task because you might not be getting the identification that you believe you're getting. So I think it's almost more 
it can almost be more of a detriment because if you have been taught or told, Hey, look at this one and that one. And if you see these things, you're all good. But if you see these, they're bad, blah, blah, blah. Well, if you think that you're good and then it turns out, well, if you actually did more genetic work on it, they're actually the maybe let's say the most harmful, something that'll kill your plant straight up. But because you were told in a class based on some anecdotal uh, antiquated style, you believe that this is going to be healthy for your plants. So I, I think that it really, comes down to trying to do the best with what we have with our modern science. And oftentimes it doesn't come from the cannabis space. Like I hate to say that because I love the cannabis community. I love shows like this. We disseminate a lot of good information, I believe, but sometimes there is misinformation or sometimes older information that can be misguided. And I think um, it's nice to hear and, and see what is available um, in the current state of science. I mean, I don't even think we need to get to in the reads here. Like, here we go. Um, Here's a, here's an organism that the genome, like every insect or not every insect, but most insects go through some sort of metamorphosis and they have the same genome. And yet a caterpillar has the same genome as a butterfly. Kevin McKernan of medicinal genomics made this point in a, in a presentation. I always bring that up because I thought it was just a really uh, overt way to make a really complex um, point super simply which is that like, sometimes your eyes aren't telling you the truth. Like how long did it take for people? You know, some people ask me if a caterpillar, you know, if it is its own thing or they don't know that caterpillars turn into butterflies. And for me, that's very banal information, but it's not like, not everyone knows these sorts of things. And I'm not trying to sound like I am superior or anything of, of that sort for knowing that. Uh, I love bugs. <laughs> But, but it's certainly uh, not intuitive information. You wouldn't like yeah. look walking through nature and be like, oh, there's a caterpillar. That's going to turn into something that fucking flies. If you told somebody that, they'd think that you're like, on an acid trip. Right, until exactly. you observe it long enough to see it go into that cocoon and crack out and become a butterfly. I don't blame you, people for not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> at all. Not at all. Um, yeah. So, uh, so Smiley, if you do have that information, I would love to to look into it because I don't, you know, I want to give people the opportunity to explain their their points and their reasoning there, um, at least me personally, I don't wanna speak for everyone on the panel. Um, but yeah, if you have some of that data or if you know what people are talking about with those oomycetes or with the fungi bacteria, cause yeah, the microbiome, um, even in my cannabis uh, global IPM review videos on my channel, like I go over the cannabis microbiome and like 808 um, rooting prospects mentions earlier in the chat, uh, yeah, I do think that sometimes there are things that we attribute to genetics that could actually possibly be the genetics of a different thing, not the endogenous genes of the plant, but those of the microbes inside or outside on the surface um, or just existing uh, nearby uh, in the soil or on the foliage. Um, that certainly could be the case, just like with aphids, you know, aphids have endogenous genes in them that allow them to like break down sugars and other, other sorts of aspects like pectinase and that breaks down pectin and all those sorts of things. But they also have microbes in their body that break down other things that shut off um, immune responses and pathways and that kind of a thing too. And they don't, they don't have that. The aphids don't have that. It's the microbes inside them that allow them to do that. I wanted um, to say one thing about the whole Scott situation, because I don't want to just be completely trash on a guy who's not even here to defend himself. I've listened right. to a lot of his talks and I do think that um, I, I believe he's having success with the farmers and growers that he's consulting with. So I'm happy for him. 
as I'm happy for Coot, who's having success with his grows and the people that he's worked with on the forums for years and years, helping them successfully grow cannabis. I think this is one of those perfect situations of like, there's no one way to do it. Um, multiple people are having success with multiple methods. I think it's fun to discuss them. And I actually like that Scott's trying to dive into the data. Um, it's fun to be able to grow really simply with just water only, like doing something like Coot, where you're not having to worry about pHing and monitoring a bunch of soil tests and things like that. But I also like what Brandon's doing with SAP analysis, soil analysis. And Scott's more on that side of the spectrum where he's testing the soils and SAPs and trying to dial things in as much as possible. And I think there's uh, validity to both sides. And I'm happy that there are people pushing the boundaries on organics to kind of get those levels close to if not equal to hydroponic growing where they've got the systems completely dialed in where they know what nutrients are needed when and how to deliver them at the most appropriate ratios and things like that. Sensibly, yeah, most of these people are having, oh, I don't mean to interrupt. I've been bogarting the conversation. So I just want to say this last part. Ostensibly, these people are having success, right? So like, there's got to be something a little bit to it, right? Maybe not everything. And I don't, and I agree with you. I'd, I'd love to have a conversation. I don't want to um, speak ill of anyone in that case, but those particular arguments I do find a little bit weaker. Um, but like, even with myself, sometimes I'll say stuff and I assume people like, you know, like right here on the podcast, I don't like put a citation in every, in, in the chat box, every time I like reference a research report or anything like that. Right. So uh, I get it, you know, for brevity's sake, for the sake of conversation, you know, you can't always dive into the details and I don't expect everyone to, because that would make you really fun at parties. Right. Uh, but um, I definitely appreciate uh, that people are, at least the intent is that they're trying to do that. And, you know, I can't argue with that. For sure. Noah, yeah, you, did you have something you want to say there? Yeah. You kind of got to, I would just say you kind of got to get in there in the ring and just start doing it yourself. You know, when i First came here, I've been growing for, I don't even know, six, seven, eight years. And I thought that I was king dude. And I mean, I was getting good results and being around all you ninjas, I was humbled very quickly. And I was, uh, I was lucky enough to be able to, to be humble enough to learn. And I've gotten way, way better results. And, and I have just fine tuned this over the years. And like I was just saying to you before we started over, I just completely am starting over. I'm doing something completely different. And I'm scared. And it's, it's kind of like a good scared, you know, because it's like, I, I know what I'm looking for. And I know that, you know, different things that I, I didn't know before. And I'm just trying something completely new. I'm doing different soil. I'm doing water only. And I, and it's really weird. I feel, you know, I feel kind of out in a limb for the first time in a while. And it's kind of exciting, you know, and I know I'm going to run into some problems. And, uh, but I, you know, I think that anybody that's going to grow, you just got to got to just just jump in and do it. You know, when I first started growing, the guy that showed me what to do, I was smart enough to listen to him. And I got really good advice and I hit the ground running. Most people did not believe that that was my weed that I grew. They were like, no way, you bought this or something. I'm like, no, and that was my first grow ever. And it was, it was, it was really good because somebody that knew what they were doing, told me what to do, told me exactly what to get. Make sure you do organic this, make sure you do that. Don't listen to any, you know, people that are telling you to do all these salt stuff. Don't do all these powders. Don't do BC Bloom. Don't do all this stuff. And I didn't, and it turned out well. Now, did I get as good a yield as other guys? No. Did I know, have any idea what IPM at the time was? No. And then my other, the same guy that showed me how to grow, he told me, hey, I've never sprayed with anything. I've never had any problems. And I was like, wow, that's insane. Go over to his house like six months ago. He's dealing with thrifts. 
he's having a big issue with it. And I told him, I was like, bro, you got to be preventive doing this stuff. So it's like, you got to be willing to take advice and you got to be willing to learn new stuff. If you're going to be growing this, this is a constantly evolving machine. And like I said, I'm, I opened a door and now I feel like I feel kind of giddy, like a little kid, but scared at the same time. So I think that's the best reaction to have. Honestly, that's a very endearing story to hear. Like, and like, you know, let's, let's not, let's not be intellectually dishonest here. Millennia ago, you know, people were growing plants, people growing plants, agriculture, you know, and uh, they didn't know what a microbiome was. Um, maybe they had sort of holistic or an animistic beliefs about the world that in some ways are actually kind of relevant, I would say, um, from, the, from this like sort of uh, hollow genome perspective that I like to look at things from, um, that things are all connected, right? But, you know, and they were able to grow these plants and maybe not like in the same way that we do, of course. I don't want to make a false equivalency, but like you don't have to know some of these cool things to actually grow well. Um, but, you know, that's for certain definitions of well, I guess. The more you know, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm with you there to a large extent, Matthew. Um, I, you know, one of the things to always remember about the traditional plant techniques and farming techniques is they're selected over those aforementioned millennia. So right. they work even if the practitioners aren't aware of the mechanism. Yes, I love that way that you put it. <laughs> yeah. I want to give Spartan Grown an opportunity to give us any of his final thoughts that he might have for this week's show. Uh, he's been nice and quiet over there, but I want to make sure he has a chance to get any final thoughts in before he has to reload his tray, let the dogs out, and get ready for Michigan Bros Grow Show in 15. Well, thanks, Jack. Thanks for the show, as always. Thanks, everybody on the panel. It's always fun hanging with you guys. Um, yeah, I don't have a lot to add, man. I'm just, uh, I've been pretty actually I had a great day I, I spent most of my day outside planting plants I spent like 50 bucks in plants today <laughs> it wasn't all vegetables I had a lot of herbs too so uh, I'm just building my garden so it's it was a fun day outside it wasn't even with cannabis surprise is surprise but it's still I love growing things so it's yeah. funny I did the exact same thing today <laughs> See, you can't growing is what's fucking addictive man that's the gateway gateway to growing everything man I can't wait to come visit you guys and see your uh, cannabis gardens and the non-cannabis gardens because I'm actually Spartan. I watched one of your update videos and I'm actually pretty impressed with just what survived from last year and sprouted back up and started growing itself right in its place, especially in yeah. Michigan where I know your winters are brutal. Yeah, I was. I just, I just put a big old thick mat of fucking leaves down and those are free. They drop, drop on their own. I just mowed them. I seen that too. That was really cool, Spartan. I totally dig that, man. Yeah. I, like you said, you, you get the bug, man. Like, dude, I, I talked to um, Coot on Aaron the Grower. Uh, I think a live stream with all, a bunch of guys. I can't remember when it was Christmas or New Year's. He told me a store over in Portland. I went over there, talked to him, ended up buying like $300 worth of stuff, took it home. This is just for my vegetable garden. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Got some raised beds, and uh, I'm geeking out on all that stuff too. I just want for you guys with my vegetable garden stuff, but I'm dude, doing all that stuff too. <laughs> dude, I can sit here and talk for hours. I'm, dude, I just this year I, I added, I have three raised beds right now. I added this hose that is like in between a soaker hose and a sprinkler. It's got like it's regular vinyl hose, but it's got like slits cut in it. So little fucking water streams. So if you lay it with the, they have a white line on it. If you lay it with a white line up, it'll be like a sprinkler. If you lay it with a white line down, it's like a soaker hose. So I just fed that through my 
my three beds and put stakes down to hold it down and i was twisting it so it would shoot the way i wanted it to towards each plant and stuff and i was, I was fucking stoked over a stupid hose man that is awesome <laughs> yeah I, I can do all three beds all i gotta do is one hose so i just turn the water on and i can do all three of my beds it's those little I just things. got a bunch of crazy hoses and i'll post a picture of my hoses in our group chat i got some crazy hoses too i swear to god we're growers talking about hoses over here. <laughs> all right man i gotta get the hell out of here cheers Spartan. See you guys thanks you. for having me Love Spartan. No, I was going to say the one thing is that 300 bucks uh, in the time that you go through it, I bet you're going to grow way more than $300 worth of food and it'll be a lot better quality and better for the environment because it's not being shipped. It's all done right in your backyard, which is uh, super empowering. Awesome to see that you're doing that. Uh, the other thing I was going to say is also awesome to see that you're stepping into growing cannabis in soil, water only a little bit. I know that you've been in soil uh, with your own little recipes, but it's cool to see you doing something completely different because I believe the more you can kind of step out of your comfort zone and make yourself a little bit uncomfortable, it's your opportunity to grow, not just like the plants, but as a person. I think when you force yourself through those uncomfortable stages, you really have an opportunity to learn. And uh, I think you're going to learn a lot throughout this next few grows and uh, that bio 365 soil. I've seen a lot of people have great results and I'm, um, Looking forward to seeing uh, how it turns out for you. And I wish you nothing but success in there. I appreciate that. Yeah. And then uh, I didn't want to interrupt everyone. They're talking. I, this ankle surgery, man, it really set me back. I, I, I have a tent. I was talking to you even about getting a light. And uh, I got a really a bunch of really good seeds from a lot of people. Some really good stuff from uh, Predicator Breeding Kyle there. Some rock candy stuff. I'm excited, really excited to pop. Some stuff from Brandon. I got a bunch of autos from uh, Full Duplex, my buddy Dan Jimmy, that I'm going to be going outside. And uh, I, I'm really excited. And uh, I got some black strap he gave me. Uh, I, I bought some from him. He, he gave me a really good deal. I he got some from my buddies. And uh, I am really excited about doing a bunch of seed stuff, too. So I just, with, you know, I'm just glad to be able to be moving around a little bit more. It took the surgery was pretty brutal. But, uh, yeah, I'm really excited about some of the seed stuff I got going on, too. This is not nearly the extent of what your situation is, but I did find out recently after twisting my knee a bit that I have a very mild case of tendonitis. So I've been nursing that too. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm a, it's just such a weird sensation. It's not even painful, but it's like present. It's like I can feel my knee presence almost in a way. And it's a little bit less dexterous than it is usually. So I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm empathizing with you, man. Have you tried like any topical CBD rubs? Like that's the one when I'm having like issues with uh, muscle pain, tendonitis and issues like that in joints, uh, topical CBD or even mixture of C THC and CBD. Um, salves do a really great job and uh, as short as like an hour to in just a couple of days, they can really provide tons of relief. This is a, from a six, this is from an injury about six months ago. So maybe I took too long to really get it checked out. Um, but yeah, I'm surprised I didn't figure that out. So I appreciate you saying that. Um, we'll see, we'll see what that can do for me. Yeah, knees and ankles are like the worst to try and recover from because it's almost like never the same. Oh, well, I didn't want to hear that part. <laughs> well, you use it all the time, so you just notice. And I, I right. think it can be the same if you do good physical therapy and you go through like the rehab process yourself. I, I don't necessarily like advocate going and spending a ton of money unless you can afford it or have good insurance. To I do have some. Phys therapy. I have. That's how I found out because I went to a physical therapist recently, and I think it is probably the mildest version of tendonitis anyone's ever done seen. Um, which is, I guess, me trying to make myself feel better. But you're right. Knees are so complex. Elbows, ankles, those uh, 
those joints. At least I have range of motion. It's just, just not the same. Yeah, because I, I hurt my knee way back in like playing pop one or football. I'm, you know, I'm 32 now. So I was like, what, maybe eight or 10. And like my, my same knee is still effed up just from like from then. So it's, it's weird. Yeah, football. Well, I do appreciate the data point regardless. <laughs> my, my dad, when we were doing a photo shoot years ago, the photographer is like, Did you used to play football? And she, he's like, Yeah, how do you know? He's like, uh, When you're moaning and groaning, getting into certain like kneeling positions or whatever, standing, you could right. basically hear because all these old injuries sort of come back to haunt you a little bit. But oral intake of CBD as well, not just the topical salves. Um, I've also had that. I have back problems. I got in a car accident like Noah. I got rear ended. I had a fractured C5 vertebrae and um loss of height fracture is what they call it and it was a literal a literal pain in the neck like my fucking neck i had some whiplash so i used to just use predominantly high thc varieties for my day-to-day -day functioning but i found that cbd on those worst days when you're having lots and lots of pain uh, both orally as like a tincture or topically uh, as a salve i don't personally enjoy smoking it because it takes away from the effects i'm looking for from the thc often um, and I don't necessarily get the same pain relief benefit that I do from the tincture or the salve so I just wanted to throw that out there for you too and anybody else who is listening with that similar kind of pain yeah I just want to follow that up with um, you know like like what I'm learning in physical therapy and like what I'm I already kind of knew this but you know you should you know lift a couple of weights I'm, I'm a bit of a point dexter I'll admit it but uh, you know do a little bit of uh, stretches do some some strength chaining for your, especially as you age. <laughs> Stretching <laughs> will do so much. I'm a big advocate for yoga, but like, um, I'll, I'll say this, whenever I've been in pain, I could like get a lacrosse ball and try and like roll it out or some other mm -hmm. thing, like smash it. But use your muscles. That, it's more painful where if I just do a stretch and like stretch that area, oftentimes it'll relieve it by bringing either more blood flow to the area or actually loosening up the stiff muscle that you were having issues with. Yeah, the military sort of changed my perspective on calisthenics and, and training. And they're always like 30 years behind on the current medical science. And they'll make you, oh, you, you feeling shin splints? Well, you should just keep going. You should just keep going. Just walk that out. That's not you how tough. you should. That is not. Yeah, exactly. It's not really how you should deal with shin splints. Right. But uh, that's why the VA exists, right? Anyways. Not that they really give people a lot of those um, uh, benefits. Benefits, yeah, that's the word yeah, I was looking for. It's unfortunate, though. Yeah, like um, that was the old, even in, in like sports. Like I grew up in the Midwest. It was sort of like rub some dirt in it. Like no blood, no foul. Like fucking tough it out. You're a man. No crying in whatever sport. So you tough it through these injuries and then end up having long-term repercussions oftentimes. And uh, shin splints is definitely not one that you want to just go through because it get worse and worse progressively. So. I'll never forget my friend who got flat-footed just from just from ruck marches. Um, yeah, it's common. Just... People get PTSD from basic training. Yeah, like, and I support the U.S. military to, like because they give us the freedoms. I don't necessarily support all the wars that we've gotten involved in or skirmishes and things like that. But um, I do support the individuals that sacrifice their freedom for ours. But it's unfortunate that so many of them, 22 a day. I mentioned this on another show. Unfortunately, too many take their own lives here which is actually more than die overseas in uh, active combat which um is something that i think should definitely be discussed more often so people can reach out to the veterans in their life and make sure that they're doing okay and getting the assistance that they need because often they're not and uh That's everybody true. can use a little help we're getting up to that time aren't we
We are. We got the last five minutes. So I guess first I'll pass it over to Noah the Groa. Hey, yeah. Uh, sorry I was gone for a couple weeks there, guys, but I'm glad to be back. And uh, one quick thing. I have learned so much from all of you guys. And whenever I'm listening to you guys telling everybody else stuff, sometimes it feels like you guys are talking directly to me. And I have fixed so many of my issues. Dr. Coco, all you guys, Spartan, all everyone. And I've learned so much. And anybody listening, I would just say, hey, man, if somebody tells you something, just try it. You know, you might learn something. And uh, you can always learn anything, no matter how good you think you are at something. And uh, it's been very humbling being here with all you guys. And I have a great time. I'm Noah the Grow from Instagram. If you got any questions, you can come check my stuff out. Always happy to have you, uh, Noah. Appreciate your perspective always and a uh, pleasure to have you. And I think that you're right about people uh, should be open to that feedback, whether they implement it or not. I think it's good to have an open mind and not get offended if somebody offers somebody feedback or says something on a show that maybe they're making a mistake and we're highlighting how to fix that mistake. It's it's okay to fix it. It's okay to get better. We're all constantly on that upward trajectory. Hopefully we want to, that's the goal of this. You know, we're all getting better together. So uh, cheers to you, Noah. Thank you so much for coming. Next up, we got Kyle of Predicated Breeding. Thanks, Jack. Uh, kind of random off topic. So speaking of military, my sister and her, hus- her husband, uh, who's active military, they just got sent to Germany for five years. But uh, I'm trying to see what they have out there for, uh, for cannabis. I'm trying to see if maybe uh, I can get some seeds out here. Obviously, in a scenario where he wouldn't get in trouble, but it'd be pretty interesting to see what, uh, what's going on over in that side of the country. I would be careful. I'd also be careful for OPSEC. Right. And, uh, I mean, maybe. yeah, I don't think he's, he, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, for sure. It's just a thought process in my head, but I obviously wouldn't want anything to do with contact me. Yeah, I will. Okay. Germany is really uh, interesting for a lot of reasons, but uh, yeah. Well, I thought uh, it was, yeah, I thought it was like mostly, and again, this is just me being naive, obviously, and, and not doing research, but I thought it was mostly like kind of like somewhat rundown city, but where my sister's house is, it's like beautiful, beautiful farmland. It's just like as far as the eye can see, and she was taking pictures of their yard and you know, they have all you know where properties. she is in Germany? I I, uh, I would butcher the name. I, I could send it to you though. I forget what it is. It's on it's on base, right? Or as close to? No, they're like they're. It's like military housing, but there's also civilians that are in that are kind of in those housing too. So it's not like just straight up military base. Um, it's a it's like I don't know how to explain it. Um, it's an but, interesting setup, but uh, definitely maybe off-air conversation for some like yeah, some, uh, perhaps security so. <laughs> reasons. <laughs> yeah, Anywho, yeah, OPSEC, observe it. Uh, also true for other things in your life, cybersecurity, you know, Equifax, you know, just, uh, yeah. That was uh, quite the <laughs> mess up there. But uh, with that said, Matthew Gates, uh, you want to give your final thoughts and shout out? Yeah, no, I want to thank everyone in chat for asking the cool questions. Um, you know, uh, I've had many conversations with, for example, Smiley's Garden, and recently I had a long conversation with Chad Westport, who I also see in the comments, and I appreciate um, uh, both of their activity and sort of simulating these conversations. And I thought it was a really endearing one that we had, like the last, maybe last uh, 15, 20 minutes here, talking about the intricacies of the microbiome and other sorts of things. So um, yeah, I just want to say that I really do appreciate, um, and I keep feeling like I'm just repeating myself, but those conversations are pretty fun and they're cool. And we get to, it's a crucible, you know, these, these, uh, podcasts can be a bit of a crucible and burning down things to their, to their essentials, um, so that people can like disseminate that info. Speaking of which, if you want to learn more info about IPM and other sorts of things like that, you can check me out in two major places. Now three, 
Uh, one is my YouTube channel, which I haven't uploaded to in a little while, which you're not supposed to say when you're advertising, but there's a ton of cool stuff there anyways. You can also find me on my Discord, which you can get access to through my Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Zenthanol, same name as the YouTube channel. And you can also find me on Instagram at Sync Angel, where I think most people actually know me from with the sobriquet uh, Sync Angel. Yeah. How long have you been doing the YouTube for? I'm just curious. I believe I started my YouTube in 2014. So that's uh, quite a bit of time because uh, that's something I don't think a lot of people realize is you have a tremendous back catalog of information where if you didn't put out another video for the rest of your life, I think you've already put a pretty concrete IPM reference guide out there for the community. So for those who haven't yet, definitely check out uh, Zenthanol on YouTube because it's like my personal IPM reference guide that I've helped many, many growers with. And uh, I, I think that there's few other places like it that are so open and helpful and some often concise like the cannabis ipm video is like two hours the part two or whatever but most of the videos for like pest primers which are extremely effective they're very short and sweet to the point they give you all the information that you would want and need and help you apply it in your grow uh so with that said definitely big shout out to him and maybe consider supporting on the patreon over there starting at just one dollar per month that'd be pretty cool uh, and last, but certainly not least, Dr. MJ Coco. Hey guys, yeah, I am Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. Um, thanks for the shout outs and everything else. And I wanted to say, I, I love that uh, Zenthanol's library of YouTube videos as well. I think it should get much more love. And um, yeah, we're trying to publish the sort of articles to go along with that and be hosting all of that. So I, I was a huge fan of that stuff. Um, I do appreciate it. I'm still dealing with a data recovery issue though. So <laughs> no unfortunately. <laughs> um, but anyways, guys, I also wanted to tell everybody about... Um, the strain review giveaway that we're doing this this month. Um, let's see, uh, Dertro, a dude, just mentioned the the Metacro light, and um, that got me reminded me of this. That we're giving one of those away, Metacro Fold Eight, this month. Um, all you gotta do is write a strain review and get entered to win that. It uh, can cover five by five. You can also dim it down and cover four by four. Um, check out my YouTube video on that and go write a strain review. Um, yeah, and. Um, Come visit us at CocoForCannabis.com. I was pretty quiet today. I was kind of like drifting off, smoking a ball, enjoying the the conversations. Um, but I'll chime in more maybe next week. So grow our love, everyone. Grow love, Dr. MJ. We look forward to having you back next week. Dr. MJ also has a, an amazing selection of videos on his YouTube you can check out. And uh, also CocoForCannabis.com is an amazing place full of lots of helpful guides and tutorials on how to grow cannabis affordably. Uh, a lot of great stuff for cocoa, but it generalizes outside of that as well to lighting and IPM and more IPM. Oh no. We lose Jack. I think so. Uh-oh. Coming. Only for the cool things that I think about that type of collaboration is. to say his outro too. Oh, he's Yeah, it says now. my connection's unstable. I guess I'll be back soon. Oh, there you are. You're back. You're okay, back. good. I was just going to say, um, yeah, Xenthanol's YouTube, I don't think it's rewarded by the YouTube algorithm because they like constant new content all the time. So like, because he has a back catalog, he's not going to make a pest primer seven times over and have it come out every few weeks or months. I think that it's great that you're collaborating with Cocoa for Cannabis because when I made YouTube videos about like paintball or other stuff when I was in the earlier days, um, I found some of my traffic would come from like forums and forum posts. So like Cocoa for Cannabis, a lot of the traffic might come from there on those older videos that might not be 
being pushed by the YouTube algorithm. Yeah. But when it gets put into a community, it gets a lot more eyeballs on it uh, because it can even be hard to find sometimes within the mix of so many other great videos, uh, what somebody's looking for. Like maybe they have spider mites and they just go and start scrolling through the videos as opposed to typing xenthanol spider mites. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a great visibility and some link juice back to his channel. It's good stuff for sure. And I'm, I'm happy to see it for a lot of reasons. And with that said, uh, we've gone a few minutes over, but I'm at Jack Greenstock on uh, Cannabuzz as well as Instagram. You can find me, Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter. And if you want to email me, jackgreenstock47 at gmail.com. It's been a pleasure as always, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. Everyone in the chat, the people on the panel, uh, really appreciate all of you.